watch him closely. What's the secret, Max? You just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. I don't wanna be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Establishing Shot, a podcast where we do deep dives into directors and their filmographies. I am excited to jump back in uh, with uh, The French Dispatch, which until recently was Wes Anderson's last movie, but now we have another one, so can't really say that anymore. Um, But yeah, uh, Wes Anderson is our director we're on. Uh, covering all of his films. Uh, We're on the second to last now, The French Dispatch, his 10th movie in his filmography. And I'm excited to uh, have uh, a first-time guest on with me this week, Kara Smith. Uh, She is joining me from uh, Georgia. Um, Yeah, Kara, me and Kara sort of grew up together. Her Her mom and my mom were like best friends when they were younger. And so, um, we kind of hung out with them. Uh, her, her older brother, Eric was closer to my age and we would hang out and yeah, you and my sister, my little sister were best friends and still kind of are. Um, so yeah, I've known care for a long time and, uh, yeah, I was thinking like, man, I really need to get a woman on my podcast. (laughs) So it's not just a podcast, uh, of, movie dudes you know um <laughs> honored to be the so token Kara- female <laughs> yes yeah you're you're my token female and uh you know i hope that i mean i don't just hope to i will definitely have on others in the future <laughs> but yeah for run as of now you're the one token female for the podcast so congratulations on that thank you so much um you know yeah <laughs> but yeah kara uh i know I was trying to think like, man, who can I find? And, um, Kara started doing, uh, like Instagram movie reviews. And so I started following her there and I was like, oh yeah, I can get, uh, get Kara on. So yeah, here she is. She's joining us for, for this discussion on the French dispatch, but yeah, Kara, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Um, and then, uh, how you got really started into movies. Yes. Well, hello. Um, I am excited to be here. I will warn that I'm not a cinephile, but just a movie lover. So I will not necessarily say all the same things or, you know, have the same um, favorites as some of you and your friends might have. I definitely am more into uh, some silly movies at times. So I'm not all, you know, into the serious films, but um, I... yeah. Yeah, as you know, you said I you I've known you all of my life. Um, you're older, so <laughs> you can't say the same. But since I've been born, yeah. I don't know a time I didn't know you. So um, yeah. we grew up together, and as part of the same really like larger family, which has always been nice. Mm-hmm. And when I think of movies, I do often think of your household as well as my own because I think there was always movies playing in some form or another um, at the house in the minivan 
wherever it might be. <laughs> a lot of my childhood <laughs> memories are with Hannah, your little sister, um, watching movies together. Um, and I would say that really when I think of movies, I often think of blockbusters and the movie theaters because those were definitely sure. two just institutions in my childhood. I have always loved movies and television. I think even when I was an infant, I probably was the child staring at the screen if there was one in the room. And we were always right. Friday night at Blockbusters renting something new. I would always watch my rental like four or five times because I just loved it. <laughs> I'd go in there and pick something random off the shelf. And as long as it seemed okay to my mom, we would rent it and we'll we'll see what it is. You <laughs> have fun with that. Uh, so that's where I definitely started watching movies, but I feel like I got into more like classic films and things like that from the show Gilmore Girls. They reference a lot of stuff. I'm a curious person. I always okay. want to know like, okay, y'all talk about this book. You talk about the movie, a show. I want to see it. I want to know what it is. So a lot of my older movies or classic films that I've seen, even like something like Casablanca, that was almost exclusively mm -hmm. because of the references in Gilmore Girls. So I would go to Blockbusters and rent those movies. And then later on, you know, obviously on streaming, I still go back and I'm like, oh, I've heard of that movie. Why have I heard of that movie? I'm like, oh yeah, Gilmore Girls, let me give it a shot so that I have <laughs> that knowledge. And when somebody else references it, I know. So that has been my experience and my development to now. But yeah, I'm the friend who watches a lot of movies, whether it's whether I know the most, that's definitely up for debate, but I watch a lot of them. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I would never have guessed, you know, Oh, this, your venue or I guess door into a, a cla more classic film would be through Gilmore girls. That's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, kudos to it. Gilmore girls. Absolutely. I've, I've seen an episode here or there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, from, from my wife watching, but, uh, but yeah, that's really cool. That's, that's unique and fun. Uh, so, yeah. and, Already a different and perspective I'm from really, uh, yeah, uh, I'm really happy to, uh, to have someone that is like a self-acclaimed non-cinephile. That's, yeah. um, that's always fun. Um, because I, I do think there's a degree to which like, uh, you know, you can talk about movie as like art kind of objectively and like what makes it good and what makes it bad. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of people just watch movies just to be entertained, just to yeah. have fun, um, to escape. And, you know, I do too, you know, uh, I think when, I think a lot of people when they're first getting into like really into film kind of have that like, you can kind of have a little bit of like snootiness or, yeah. uh, you know, like, Oh, I've seen mm -hmm. this film. And, uh, but after a while you start to realize like, man, this is really a subjective endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> like for sure. People like movies. Yeah. People like movies for different reasons and that's cool. That's great. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, what was your, do you remember what your first Wes Anderson movie was? Um, my first one was definitely the Grand Budapest Hotel. So I remember okay. watching that. Um, I feel like randomly at the house with my parents, I think it was the movie of the week on probably HBO or something like that after it had come out in theaters and was released, mm -hmm. you know, for 
TV and whatnot, and it was the movie of the week. We watched it, and I did love it. But I will say, I think The French Dispatch is the first one that I truly intentionally saw and is still my favorite of the ones I've seen. I've not seen every single one of them, but I do think The French Dispatch is my favorite. So I was excited when you asked me between this, and I think it was Isle of Dogs at the time. And I was like, actually, Mm -hmm. this one's my favorite. So I... I was excited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a spoiler for at the end where we (laughs) we talk about where, where replace it. Um, but yeah, that, which, yeah, that's really cool. I don't know a lot of people that have French dispatch as their favorite. So it's one of those that's kind of like, yeah, it's one of those where some people have it really low. Some people have Mm -hmm. it higher, but I don't, I don't, I think you're the first one I've heard that has it at number one. Which, um, you know, I've even heard, um, I've even had heard people uh, having like Darjeeling Limited as their number one, which most people have as like the last. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's really cool. Um, Well, I'm glad uh, that worked out for for you to be able to come on and discuss your favorite. And uh, yeah, with that, let's let's jump into talk on the French Dispatch. Um, So you um so you had seen did you see it in theaters when it came out i did which is also another reason why i loved it so much was because it came out what october 2021 so it was one of the first movies i remember seeing post-pandemic like in the theater full experience yeah it might not have been the very first one but it may have been i don't know Mm -hmm. i mean definitely around that time it was weird like going into the theaters and how many things were playing and I do remember going, sitting at an AMC and being like, wow, this is, this is a whole movie as, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not just some streaming movie, like everything else. This was a full blown production and I just appreciated mm-hmm. it so much having come from the pandemic and only really watching things on Netflix and Hulu that are, you know, sometimes definitely so far. <laughs> uh, sure. So yeah, it was a beautiful time to get back into the theater and and see this and it's full glory and yeah silliness (laughs) yeah i remember the first one i saw after um kind of after pandemic times it was really still kind of in the middle of it well it was tenant when tenant came out in theaters Um, maybe yeah maybe it was just one Um, of the first ones i saw by myself in the theater which also is yeah. just a big yeah. experience for me. I love going to the theater by myself. So maybe that was another aspect. Yeah, of it. same. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I didn't actually see French Dispatch in theaters. It was just one of those, you know, when you have a family and kids or yeah. even just like a job and a life, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, there's time, there's like times where like you can make it to the theater to see movies you want to see. And there's times where it's hard to, um, sure. so I just didn't make it to see French dispatch in theaters. So, um, which is, you know, I was kind of sad about that, but, um, but I did as soon as it was like out and available, um, yeah. I snagged it up and, uh, watched it. So yeah, it, it's, um, it's definitely, it, it is, you know, I like how you it's said it's a whole movie. It is, yeah. <laughs> definitely a uh a production i guess with a capital p uh yeah it's everything but the kitchen um, sink he threw it all in there it 
he did. And it's funny, you know, we'll, we'll get into a a little bit later, just like all the things he's doing Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this movie, which is a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I wanted to start it off uh, like we always do, just kind of talking about where did this movie come from? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you've lived, if you listen to past episodes, you know, this will sound familiar, but Wes, um, Wes is like, in his interviews, he can be sort of vague, but very detailed at the same time. It's it's this weird, um, I don't know. He's he's not like telling you why he made a movie or what it what it's about exactly, but he kind of yeah. gives you these vague clues. Um, but yeah, one of the things he he like for the past, it seems like three or four movies. Um, just hearing him in interviews, he just talks about how none of his movies come from like one idea. They're always like several or a multitude even of ideas kind of all smushed together. Um, This one certainly is. (laughs) Yes. And so he, but he did name, he said there were three things he wanted to do. He wanted to do an anthology film, um, Mm -hmm. which this very much is. Um, He wanted, you know, a kind of a collection of stories. Um, Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to do, um, a a film that had something to do with the New Yorker. Um, mm-hmm. He, yeah, he was a, a, he has been for a long time, a big fan of uh, that publication. And um, he actually, he, in, in an interview, there's a kind of a long form interview in the New Yorker um, about uh, them just talking about, you know, this movie, uh, it's influences, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting. I didn't, I, I got to read a lot of it, but not the whole thing. Um, but he talks about how in 11th grade, he had his like homeroom in the library and yeah. um, his seat was like right in front of um, a section that was like periodicals or something. And he noticed mm-hmm. one of them had a picture on the front which was different. Um, You know, all the New Yorkers have a unique artwork on the front Mm -hmm. and uh, it caught his eye and he picked it up and he read uh, an article. I think it was, I think he said the first article was um, something like a a letter from New Delhi or something. I forget the the name of the author of it, but, um, but yeah, he, he was like captivated by it. And so he started like collecting them starting yeah. starting way back then and reading them in the library and went through college. And it, it's even to the point where I think he said that as of now, he has like almost every issue going back to the 1940s, which is that's really amazing. impressive. That, that must be, yeah, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, that must be, <laughs> yeah, that's an impressive can, collection. So, um, and I can only imagine yeah, where ahead. he stores those because for a long time, I collected all of the Vogue's that I was subscribed to. So 12 a year, (laughs) they're huge. And I remember seeing in a documentary, I think it was the first Monday in May, that documentary, or maybe it was the September issue documentary, but there was a daughter of an editor who she had all of the Vogue's. It was all of these white bindings on these shelves in her like living Mm -hmm. room and everything. I was like, that looks amazing. Started keeping mine. I was like, this is the most ridiculous, heavy, just, like paperweight just everywhere there's paper shelves are full 
it quickly becomes out of hand. So I can only imagine where he stores those. And if he's ever moved since then, how he, you know, transported all of that paper because it gets heavy real fast. Yeah. Yeah. I think he did have a lot of them bound. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and he even mentioned like he, there's a point where he, they came out all online um, and he kind of stopped. But So I don't, I don't know. It was kind of vague of like, does he actually have all of them or does he just like have them all digitally now? I don't know. (laughs) But but I do know he was, he did say he was having them bound for a long time. Um, That's cool. I I assume similar to the, yeah. Um, And so like, obviously he has not just like a a love of the New Yorker, but like, Mm -hmm. I guess a vast knowledge of its history, um, it's writers, that sort of thing. So that was, that was the second big influence. And then the third one was he just wanted to make a French film. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he, uh, he has, when he, you know, in, in previous podcasts, especially like um, in the first one where we do an overview, kind of talk about how a lot of um, the films he was watching when he was really getting into film in college uh, were like French new wave, uh, mm-hmm. directors, like from the fifties and sixties. And, uh, he, that influence has been kind of all through his career. Um, but yep. in, he even like, he, so at this point in his career and in life, he's, he's lived in France, uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, long stretches, like he has an apartment there. And so he just, he just really loves French cinema. He loves French art and loves living in France. And so he's like, I want to make a French movie because I like France. It's surprising uh, that he hadn't before but, the French dispatch because he does even give off a French vibe. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, I just saw an image of him. No, I, it, would, it, I would guess he was French if I didn't know better. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. He So there's like, a point like if you go back and like so i've been obviously like watching interviews and stuff with him yeah. all throughout this series and so like there's a point somewhere around like between like royal tenenbaums and life aquatic where there's this like shift in his style like uh-huh. um he used to have like this kind of like typical of that time poofy like hair um mm-hmm. and like there's a shift where he's like he's got the like the long hair and he's wearing mm-hmm. like kind of a suit all the time sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really to funny <laughs> to watch. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's funny to see that transition, but yeah, he, he does. And he, he does give off like, not just that in his like personal style, I guess, but mm-hmm. in his movies, like really yeah. through his career, he's given off that vibe in his, in his movies. Um, but this is the first one where like, he was like, I want this to be set. Like it's set in France. It's, um, you know, it is very much, uh, kind of, um, it's hard to say like, oh, this is a French film. It's like, you have, you kind of have to say it with the asterisk of like, this is a Wes Anderson French film (laughs) because he, he doesn't really do like, he doesn't really do things like anybody else he does it in his own way and so yeah it's this it's is funny like ideal france in his own brain 
of what right. France this is would the, be. <laughs> this is the France that lives in Wes Anderson's mind. Uh, yes. And <laughs> for sure. And, you know, you, you see, like, he'll name off, like, kind of lists of, like, directors' movies that kind of influence, like, for this one, he names, like, kind of typical ones, like Godard, Truffaut, Tati, mm-hmm. um, guys like that. And um, and you're like, okay, but so I haven't seen a lot of those films. This is, yeah, and this one is, like, one that really makes me want to, since I've been like watching through all of his movies, I'm like, man, I really need to go back and watch more of these. I've seen one or two by Godard. Um, and you watch those and then you watch Wes and you can say, okay, I can see kind of like influences, but yeah. he's not, he's not like just doing what those directors did. He's no. just kind of like taking ideas and making them his own. Um, and so it's hard to like say like, oh yeah, this film was influenced by this it's like yes but he did his own thing with it yeah you Um, can understand that at one time he loved these films these directors and he absorbed that knowledge and those visuals sometimes and that kind mm -hmm. of atmosphere but then he is still his complete self and his you know very interesting style choices and all the ways that he clearly sees the world um Mm -hmm. you see that but just there must be some knowledge there. You like understand that he has that love and knowledge and has seen these movies and has appreciated them. And like, there's, you know, little elements of it that trickle through, but still all through the filter of Wes Anderson. Yeah. It it makes me think of like, so music. So like sometimes with film, Mm -hmm. we can be like, Oh, he's just doing what this past director did or, Oh, they, you know, he's not doing anything new. He's just doing, you know, you can see yeah. the influences of this and it's, I don't know. I feel like there's this like idea that that's lesser because of that. But to me, yeah. it, so I think of the parallel with like music. So like a rock, a rock group that comes out today, they're not like making up new chords. They're not making no. up a new genre. They're doing the same things that other people have done, but they're doing something new with it. Um, yeah. And that that's like, that's what Wes Anderson is doing now. Like he would be, in my opinion, um, he is kind of a more, he would be one of the like musical artists that was more influential in creating a new sort yes. of style yeah. with past things. So he did, I think he does have that going for him, um, you know, sticking with that parallel, but yeah, he, you know, he is kind of like, taking the this like amalgamation of ideas and kind of like filtering them through his like interesting imagination and yeah, uh and like putting it on screen um but yeah you know and you can even see like the the french influence is like not just film it's like you can see mm-hmm you know obviously like he has an artist in this one and you can see the mm-hmm. you know it makes you think of um like Ren- like Renoir and uh, Monet yeah. and those sorts of guys um and then like he he kind of has this real this interest in French revolution so yeah, like there's sure. obviously like influence of like the 1700s uh French revolution and then also like there's an influence not just like of the May 1968 uh, revolution that happened in France, but also like Mm -hmm. there's actually a direct like 
reference to the New Yorker article that was that um, uh, Gallant wrote. Um, yes. a, yeah, a, about that um, that time. And yeah, then I, like uh, French food. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I saw an article that, or a video about that article in that um, revolution and everything. And it is, I mean, and when you do think of France, the revolution, the mm -hmm. art, you know, the the smells of the city streets, which are obviously mm -hmm. also depicted here um, and the food, as you were just about to say, like that's that's all the things that the French are proud of, that they, I feel like kind of bring back around every time they're discussing anything. They're like, they bring back liberty and freedom and revolution and all of that in the discussion of everything, including art, food, culture, all of it. And all of those elements he definitely picks up in this right. film. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you, it's, I don't know, it's just fun. It's, um, I've never been, like, I've, I've been in an airport in Europe. That doesn't really count. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've never been to Europe. So, like, when I watch, you know, movie, like, when I watch European movies, that's like yeah. my reference point, um, which I know you recently had a trip. Did, did y'all go to yes. France at all? Um, I have been to France once and it was when I was okay. in Switzerland, but I'd never made it to Paris where you would think of. So I was in, um, and I don't even remember exactly what the city is, but I did, was in France for a little bit, but it was close to the Switzerland border. Um, so gotcha. I just basically spent a day in France. I've been to the Charles de Gaulle airport many a times, uh, transferring flights. And that is, in my opinion, the worst airport in the world. So, and it feels very French because everyone has an attitude. So, um, and nothing is easy, but, uh, I, I do think that movies like this have, are, are very funny in the sense of they romanticize France in particular, but then mm -hmm. also they kind of bring up the exact elements that once you kind of go, you see like the rats, the cats. The smells, the gloom, um, all yeah. of that is prevalent, prevalent. But also, he still continues to romanticize France and French culture, which, of course, has been romanticized for forever. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And he, he, um, you know, when I did the uh, the episode on uh, Darjeeling, you know, he mm -hmm. he kind of talked about in interviews how like he had grown um, just a deep love of like traveling and exploring you know new places and yeah. um he kind of talks about how like there's this weird um i guess like paradox in a way of like being in another place especially like if you're there for an extended period where yeah. um you feel like there's moments where you can feel deeply lonely but there's mm -hmm. also like there's also like something special about that and like in the kind of adventure of it all, um, like yeah. everything you're doing and experiencing, mm -hmm. um, like even like mundane tasks, like if you're living somewhere for months, um, then like you have to do, you have to get groceries, like you have to, yeah. um, you know, do normal stuff. And there's, if you were just doing it here in America, like as an American, it's just like mundane, normal you know, mm -hmm. stuff, but in another country, everything is an adventure. Like, am I yeah. going to be able to get what I need? Cause I don't yeah. speak the language that well. Like, am I going to be able to like find my way around? 
Um, yeah, the variety of things that you may have never seen before, the things you get to mm -hmm. try even at a grocery store, the the cookies you yeah. could buy next to the Oreos that you intended to buy, but you're like, oh, well, these are from this country, so let me try those. Or, right. you know, just the things that you expect to be the exact same, but you taste a Pringle in Ireland and it tastes completely different than a Pringle in America. And you're like, oh, <laughs> well, this is fun. And this was, yeah, different than just me getting a snack that I anticipated to be exactly what I thought there's all these variations that just remind you like, oh yeah, I am traveling. I'm actually in a different place and culture and I'm having a different experience yeah. every second of every day, pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's like, uh, it's just unique. It's a unique experience being somewhere else. And mm -hmm. yeah, I will say that in my opinion, Coke, for some reason, tastes better in every other country. Um, yeah, I don't know why. I, you know, I think the main reason is they're not using corn syrup to sweeten it. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that's so like, if that's, you know, if you've never gotten to another country, just like, you know, that's your motivation. Go so you can try Coke. That tastes yeah, better in another country. I mean, <laughs> if you were saying, why should I go to Ireland? Cause I spent like most of it one summer there, I would tell you because their raspberries for some reason taste so much better than raspberries in America. Couldn't tell you why, okay. but I ate so many raspberries the summer that I was there because every time I went to the grocery store, I was getting a new pack. They were delicious. Yeah. No idea why. That's but... true. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, um, yeah, it's, it's funny Wes. uh, I think it's one of the, so there's a guy, Hugo Guinness that co-wrote mm -hmm. Grand Budapest with him. Yes. Um, and he was one of the co-writers here along with uh, Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola um, who have partnered with him. This is the first time that you have that kind of like foursome all together. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's fun. But Hugo Guinness, uh, he, Wes says that he describes Americans going to Europe as kind of reverse immigration. So like mm -hmm. with an E, I don't know. Yes. I guess like there is a way you pronounce those differently, but not yeah, with my accent. They sound the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Immigration, immigration. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I'm not going to say it different. It's immigration <laughs> with an E. Um, there you go. So like, you know, leaving America to move to Europe. Um, yeah. He, you know, Hugo Guinness says that's reverse immigration because you're you're just going back to kind of well, I guess like especially if you're white, you're going back yeah. to where you came from. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know, it, it doesn't apply across the board, um, but nah. to white Americans, which Wes and Hugo and me and you are, <laughs> it, it's uh, you know, it's um, reverse immigration. And which I think is uh, kind of like, it's a funny way to think of it, but also like very true. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a sense in which, um, you know, when you go to Europe or like experience Europe, maybe like through the arts, like I, mm -hmm. I have since I haven't been, there's like a sense of history and um, just like you can sense the that the culture has just been through a lot more yes. than it has here in america um yeah which is it's very interesting um and i think that 
that comes across in, um, you know, it comes across in this film and others of Wes. You know, I think, you know, the yeah. Grand Budapest is probably the prime example of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it comes across here too. But yeah, just, you know, circling back around to like the fact that this is very much a, a, a French film. He wanted to make mm -hmm. his own French film. And, um, you know, it is like, he doesn't, you know, you were kind of saying like, you think of like the cats and the drabness and like, yeah. he, he does like, he shows all that, it, you know, it made me think of, uh, Owen Wilson's character. Uh, yes, I think his name I is Sazerac. Yes. Um, you know, it's the, the traveler's log and, uh, yes. it's just him like, uh, which, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk in a minute about like the production, but it's, it's him like riding a stationary bike with the set changing behind him kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's really funny, but it's, you know, it's him kind of talking about, he's kind of like talking about it in a charming way, um, yeah. which he says he thinks <laughs> it's, it's charming so uh, later. Yeah. yeah. It's dingy and gross and like, <laughs> and drab <laughs> and uh, the, you know, Bill Murray's character, uh, Howitzer Jr. is like mm -hmm. talking with um Sazerac afterwards and he's like you know don't you want to put something like nice like a flower shop or something yeah. and Sazerac says I hate flowers you know yeah <laughs> so, I love so he like go ahead sorry yeah I was just gonna say like it's even like you know he's an American but he has like I guess he's been living here so long that he has like that sensibility like no this is this is isn't this charming? I, th I thought this was charming. <laughs> like he's thinking more like a Frenchman than an American, which is fun. Um, it just kind of goes back to that kind of reverse immigration. Like you're, you're kind of putting yourself in that mindset, living somewhere else. Uh, but yeah. yeah, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I even like loved, I remember in the theater seeing, you know, all of the title screens and everything appear. And the fact that the town was called Ennui and Sir Blase, mm -hmm. that was the funniest thing immediately mm -hmm. to me because I was actually from having watched Gilmore Girls, I knew what ennui was and what that meant. And so the fact that yeah. the whole town and just environment and this French place is just devoid of of optimism and it's, everybody's just dissatisfied with life. There's so many bodies coming out of the river. I mean, it just cracks yeah. me up. And yes, him and his little bike <laughs> yeah, with his, you know, bodies. with his French outfit, just riding around town, being like, "It's wonderful here. This is a wonderful city." Yeah, and everything is so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, and it's funny. Like it's romanticized, but it's not. It's like, isn't yeah. this great? This you know, this sensibility of like pessimism and just yeah. like disgust and and bo like boredom um and just yeah, taking yeah. it on we and on we sir blase it's like um i'm trying to remember i had looked up like all the like the direct translation and it's like on we was like sort of like boredom yeah i guess I have is it exactly here. I like have basically what it means yeah, I had Googled it too. I'd like to find the specific definition. It says a feeling of listlessness mm -hmm. and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. They are just yeah. dead inside <laughs> and they've accepted it. Yeah. And, and blase awesome. is blase is like, um, that's I feel like blase. Yeah. It's something that we actually 
I think you don't hear people really saying it much now, but I feel like at one point it was kind of like yeah. a word that Americans would even use, like it's so blase, which is like, yeah. you're so familiar with it that you're unimpressed. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's funny. It's, it's almost like, um, which I think Wes said that like Jason Schwartzman was the one that came up with the name of the town. Um, <laughs> he just like kind of said it and they were like, yeah, uh -huh. let's go with that. Um, I think it's, but it, I guess it is like, yeah, it's ironic. And it juxtaposed with the name of the Kansas town that the magazine mm -hmm. is based in, um, which yeah. is Liberty, Kansas, which just sounds like so American. Um, yes. uh, you know, but at the same time, like Liberté is in like mm -hmm. the French, um, I don't know what you would call it, like motto or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. whatever you would, whatever you would call that. Um, like the things that would end up like on your, on your money and stuff like that. Yeah, your it's like, stuff, your nation, yeah. nation's motto or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Liberté is on there, which kind of goes with the, the revolution theme, but Mm -hmm. but you but you don't like get the feeling like it's so <laughs> free here uh, no you don't get the feeling uh, of accomplishment and excitement liberty just screams like yeah we did it which is funny then of course that they gave that to america because that is the kind of atmosphere that at least we are known for sometimes some people would say foolishly having is like oh yeah we did it and we can do it all mm -hmm. kind of atmosphere yeah. and then France, who also is famous for fighting for their liberties and freedoms, is mm -hmm. ennui, blasé. Yeah, don't care. Yeah, you know? they even have the the sister of you know Lady Liberty yeah. over there. So you know we both have our our Lady Liberties. Um, mm -hmm. Just one one country has a little bit more history and a little less mm -hmm. optimism. Yeah, uh, which you know for some people that's their thing. I feel like that would be. I feel like I could get on that wavelength personally. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like me and my wife are like the, uh, like at opposing ends of that spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of person that says like, I'm not pessimistic. I'm just like real, real is Real, yeah. realistic, which is just another way of saying like, I'm pessimistic. Yeah. You're um, leaning in that direction at the very yeah. least. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, but yeah, so, you know, we, you know, we kind of mentioned, uh, the writers, you have Wes, obviously, um, co-writing with, uh, Schwartzman and Coppola and Guinness and, um, what, you know, which I really think, um, I really have enjoyed the movies that he's written with, uh, Schwartzman. Um, you know, I, I, and I like that he kind of just brings back the same guys to work with, um, yeah. because it. I think, I think something it probably does is it, it helps your, your workflow. You don't have to like mm -hmm. get muddled up and doing whatever, but, um, but yeah, he, he talked about how, um, you know, when asked about like the order that he wrote these stories in, he, he said, I definitely wrote, um, wrote, we wrote the Roebuck Wright story, which is the last one with Jeffrey Wright. Yes. We wrote that one last, uh, and they wrote, he said they wrote that one pretty fast. Um, mm -hmm. Like it was kind of like, okay, let's like tie a bow on this. And they wrote that, that story. Um, but he said he had actually had the, the painter story, uh, which has, you know, uh, Benicio del Toro and mm -hmm. Lea Sadu 
and um, Adrian Brody, the, those um, that story he had written for like 10 years, um, kind of on paper. Um, yeah. So he, he kind of added in. So when it when it started becoming like this is a New Yorker story, he mm-hmm. added in the the Berenstein. Am I saying that right? Character uh, Tilda Swinton's character. Yes. So that that part wasn't like around for 10 years. But um, but like the painter story, he had like just kind of like sitting around on paper, I guess, yeah. like Which making tweaks my... to it for 10 years. Yeah, that's my favorite chunk of the movie. So I did find that fascinating okay. to know that that was the longest standing because sometimes, you know, it could go either way. When people have been working on something for mm-hmm. so long, it can just kind of get muddled up versus, you know, throwing out something last minute and it actually being, you know, really interesting and like engaging. But I love the, what is it? I don't remember what it's actually called. Oh, the concrete masterpiece. I love that yeah. story in the in his French dispatch paper, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it it's a really interesting one. It's funny though cuz like I my favorite is the the Robuck Wright story. Yeah. Um which <laughs> I'm man, not I really, surprised. Yeah, I should have written down um the the names of all these stories. Um I think that because, one's called I have that written down, I think. Oh, um, good. The Private Dining Room. That's what that one's called. Okay. See, I couldn't have even told you that. I would never would have yeah. guessed that. Uh but yeah, so you know, that, that just goes to show like all the detail in Wes's movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, you know, he, so maybe it's like you, you're like, I think it's probably just like personal preference. Um, there wasn't a story that I disliked in this. It's just no. like, if I had to pick a favorite, it would be that one. So it's funny that, you know, you picked the one that had been around the longest and I picked like this, the one that they wrote the fastest and last. Um, yeah. So uh that was the one like I feel, I think I you know and we'll we'll get into it I guess in a mm-hmm. minute but um that one felt like it kind of put a bow on everything and kind of emotionally yeah. gave like a real um it felt like it emotionally tied everything together for me mm-hmm. um but but yeah um so that you know uh one of the things that um that I thought was funny was uh, it was in an interview, um, I want to say with like the Lincoln Center, uh, it was like the Lincoln Center uh, showing the movie and they, they did an interview and Wes and some others that were in France or Spain or something like video conferenced in and uh, yes. they were asking about like, well, when when is the setting of this movie? And Wes was like, well, there's some that feel more like this, like 60s. There's some that feel more like the, you know the 20s or something he's like it probably spans about 75 years (laughs) and so it just it you know it's which is funny because that is something about his movies is like they're all they always have a setting that feels familiar but isn't exactly like set in stone where it is in time and space um and this definitely has that feel of like this is france and it all feels like connected to France and to this French town and to things that are going yeah. on in France, but you're not really sure like when, when in France and where in France it is. Yeah. Um, it just kind of like feels French. Vaguely French. <laughs> <And> so, yes. <laughs> it is like yeah. he has even of like the time period of the sixties, the twenties, the seventies, he has seen mm-hmm. content. He knows what those do look like, but he's just absorbed that. And then said, okay, here's my story. 
it's got references of it all. It's it's yeah. still just me and my brain, but you can see how I got there sometimes. Right. <laughs> Other times, not exactly. <laughs> and it might not be accurate, but that's fine because it's my brain and my just art out there. Right. Yeah. And, um, and like, you know, talking about like influences, you know, we've been talking about the French influence, but really like the New Yorker influence is really oh, yeah. huge. huge. Um, he, he even came out with a book, uh, that for, I, I was like, man, I might need to grab this cause it would, it would be interesting to read. It's a, it's called an editor's burial, which is, mm-hmm. uh, one of the like funnier moments to me, it, like that one of those like quick passing, uh, funny, like, uh, gags that Wes throws in where, uh, you know, it's talking, you know, it's Anthony Howitzer Jr., the editor of this, yeah. you know, fictional paper um, yeah. magazine is has is dying. Like, it's not like a spoiler. You just that's part of the framing device. And it's like yeah, talking about him start. and it's like he got it. He had an yeah, he had an editor's burial. And it's like <laughs> it's like grave in the middle of nowhere with nothing around it. And oh bump my mic uh but yeah Yeah. you know like a grave in the middle of nowhere nothing around it a few people there (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh which was a really funny gag to me but that's the name of this little book he put together um Mm -hmm. it's called an editor's burial and it's basically like a collection of pieces that wes um put together that were influences and so most of them are like new yorker articles Mm -hmm. um and so it's supposed to be, he kind of called it like a footnote to the movie, which I think is a fun way of thinking about it. Um, yeah. And so I was like, man, that would be really, because the stories in the movie are so interesting and intriguing. And, um, yeah. you know, it's like, man, it would be, it would be really interesting to read some of the like articles and pieces that influenced these that were like actual real you know, pieces, um, about life and politics and, and all that. Um, but yeah, you, um, I wrote down some of like the major characters and their influences, Mm -hmm. uh, which most of these were influenced. So like each character kind of has like this, these different influences, um, some are like real life, right. Right. Counterparts in real life. Yeah. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them, I assume some of them are, are still living. Like, I know one definitely is, um, and some of them have, have passed. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, Wes being a connoisseur of the New Yorker, um, yeah. he has all these writers that he was and none of them are necessarily, like, based specifically on one person. Um, yeah. But, like, so, like, you have... Anthony Howitzer Jr., who's kind of this um, like happy medium mix of Harold Ross, who was the um, the founder of the New Yorker um, mm-hmm. and the first editor, um, and then the second editor, which whose name was William Sean, I think, and uh, yeah, so like Harold Ro- Ross was this more like um, he was kind of a more grumpy, like rough, like um, writers are kind of like children that need to be kept in check um he was more of that sort of editor and then william sean was right the note that's where the no crying comes from (laughs) which is a a great gag Um, i love that yeah uh it it makes me laugh it made me laugh when i first saw it and made me laugh this time too which Mm -hmm. part of the gag to me is just like uh 
it comes from like that square aspect ratio that he's uh-huh. using in that sequence where like you you kind of have to like pan up uh oh, to yeah. see the no crying sign which makes it even funnier uh mm-hmm. but yeah that's that's where that comes from is like the the harold ross influence but then william sean was more of like the he was more like empathetic to writers and the writing process and um and you see a lot of that in this film too um yeah. which you know i think most people were like, oh, yeah, it's Harold Ross. It's Harold Ross from like a lot of the interviews and stuff I was seeing. But um, when when he mentioned William Sean and the sort of person as an editor, William Sean was, I was kind of thinking, man, I, I see more of William Sean in this character than Harold Ross. Um, yeah. Just because like even the ways he is kind of rough and tumble, uh, Bill Murray's, you know, the way he plays this character, it's still like like caring um like you can see his care like to me the the care and the empathy came through more than like the these people are children and need to be like kept in check you know in a a fatherly way i guess um i I don't think harold ross was like this like mean person like he was rough but it was all because he wanted to push them i guess Mm -hmm. um but yeah, so you have you have the the dual influence there with with uh, Bill Murray's character, and then um, yeah, so like and then like first story, um, I don't know if the paint the so the painter you know had been around for a while that that kind of character, yes. So he yeah. wasn't it wasn't like some New Yorker kind of like influence there, but the Adrian Brody character um, Cadazio. Mm-hmm was influenced not by a writer, but, uh, but the subject of, um, of an article, um, uh, Joseph Devine, Duveen, um, mm-hmm. who was like a, uh, he kind of like was big in like commercializing art and, um, yeah. and selling pieces, which he wasn't selling like current artists. He was selling like old passed away artists, um, and did a lot in that industry. And so it's, that's it's where fun- we get the whole, um, an art is not an artist is not an artist until he sells his art right. and then he becomes an artist. Right. like that is the mentality of this man that they had written mm-hmm. about and transposed into Schwartz's character. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's a fun, very funny sequence. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think there is a degree to which like, um, it's kind of like tongue in cheek for Wes because, you know, he, he may he, he kind of has the feel of an independent filmmaker mm-hmm. um but he has big studio money um yeah. and so there's a degree to which he's like um you know i which he's he's very lucky as as a filmmaker in that he's luckily has the creative license to kind of do his own thing a lot of Absolutely. um you know a lot of directors end up having to like make studios happy and let them cut a lot of stuff. Um, And he's lucky in that regard, but there is a a degree to which like, well, I do have to sell like as a filmmaker, just in general, like to be able to make my movies, I do have to sell them. Um, And so like, it's kind of like you get the feel because when that exchange is going on, you're like, well, like, wouldn't it be nice though, if you didn't have to sell them to make your art, can't you just like make your art to make your art? And so yeah. you kind of empathize with that, that thought. And I think, I think that's intentional on Wes's part. Like, 
For wouldn't sure. it be nice if if you know you know painters and filmmakers and photographers could just like make their art without having to like mm -hmm. sell it and everything be commercialized um, yeah to me this a, you know oh sorry to me this movie feels a lot like Wes like answering questions or comments he's received throughout his entire time of even mm. saying like I'm an artist I'm a storyteller this is who these people are and they sometimes say quotes and things that are very poignant and very much this is my response. This is what I mean. Even when um, mm -hmm. they're going to sell his work and they prove that he could draw the perfect sparrow and he could draw this and he could do it perfectly, but he doesn't want to. And that's, this is more important and this is more valuable because he is doing this original thing that, yeah, you don't understand it, but doesn't mean that he's not a great artist. It doesn't mean that you should learn to appreciate this because it is completely different. Just because mm -hmm. you could do it this way doesn't mean you have to create something new. And I feel like, for me, I feel like the painter in this storyline feels a lot like maybe possibly what Wes Anderson feels when he creates what he creates and gets maybe backlash or criticisms or just questioning his artistic view and him explaining that through this character and storyline and and all that plays out with him. Yeah, I mean, that that's for sure. Like, I got that feel, too, like that some of these some of the like these stories do speak to like answering critiques in a way. And I, I don't think it's in a way where like um, I don't think Wes is one of those guys that like really cares to like engage with that in a like no. know you're wrong way. Yeah. But um but more in a way of like, well, this is why I do things the way I do. If it doesn't work for you, you know, that's fine. Like not everyone is gonna love that concrete masterpiece. But yeah. you know, this is he did what he wanted to do and there were people that appreciated it um and you know and wanted it. Yeah, um, and he just appreciates for, you know for what it was. Yeah. And he just in general appreciates other artists or clearly he appreciates other artists, storytellers who are doing their own thing, creating their own unique work and style. And so it's not necessarily just, you know, him, you know, lashing back at people, but just in general, like, hey, this is pro this is why we all all of these crazy kooky people that certain, you know, groups don't understand. This is why we do it. This is what it means to us. And we do it because we can, because we mm -hmm. feel like we should, whether you like it or not, some people will, some people will show up at the prison to see it and others won't. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah. And that's a whole nother thing with the fact that that guy was in prison, but, yeah. um, but yeah, you, so like, you know, moving on to some other influences, you have the, mm -hmm. the Berenson character, which I think I said Baron's. I guess I was thinking of the bears earlier. Um, but yeah, it's uh, J.K.L. Berenson, um, which is Tilda Swinton's character. She's um, based on uh, uh, Rosalind Bernier, who mm -hmm. is who was kind of like a lecturer on art um, mm -hmm. and I think wrote some some pieces in The New Yorker in the past. Um, but yeah, it's funny, you know, I, I saw some videos that kind of put her talking back to yeah. back with Tilda and yeah. she really nails like kind of the, the rhythm that she kind I, of it, lectured with. 
And it's so unique, the inflections, the kind of pauses, the the upswings when it doesn't seem like the voice should swing up at that time. It is. Mm-hmm. I saw that too. And I was like, wow, she did a great job mimicking that that whole kind of persona up on stage lecturing. Right. Yeah. It, and um, yeah, Tilda Swinton's a great actress. Um, yes. Yeah. She. I feel like she really nailed it's, it, at least that part of the influence, which... I think I read some other influences for that character too, but um, but like I said, there's no way I, there's no way you could ever like know, or if you know you you question if Wes even knows like all the influences for each character, yeah. <laughs> um, or what's just kind of like coming out of his you know brain of what he's taken in, like you kind of said earlier. But yeah, you have um, you then you have the second story, um, which I can't. It seems like. So you have the three main stories, but there's also um, the Owen Wilson one, which is kind of like a quick aside, I think, at the very beginning. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, the movie starts and, and already... with like, oh, sorry. It starts with saying like obituary, which is so mm-hmm. amusing and so short. And then the brief travel guide, which is Owen Wilson. And then the three feature articles, which right. yes, are the, the concrete masterpiece revisions to manifesto and the private dining room. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. So then the, you have the second main feature story, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, it, it has uh, Francis McDormand is the writer mm-hmm. in this one as Lucinda Kremitz. Um, and this one is the one we kind of talked about is based heavily on the Mavis Gallant article um, that was written about the May 1968 you know, kind of revolution in France um, mm-hmm. that was going on, which I before. So Wes had mentioned in um, an Isle of Dogs in uh, article that uh, some of the stuff happening in Isle of Dogs was even influenced by by that revolution. Um, oh wow! And I had never really heard much about this, so um, yeah, I had looked yeah. up a little bit about it for when I was doing that episode. But yeah, it's it's super. Um, obviously he he had this article in mind for that too um Mm -hmm. and then was like oh now i get to actually like show it you know kind of like a direct influence of this article yeah um but yeah this uh gallant was she had this like um you know kind of like the francis mcdormand character um Mm -hmm. there's this like kind of um uh clashing uh principles um where she like she says like i have to be removed so that i can be like objective but Mm -hmm. she also seems to have a principle of like yeah of like trying to show the most empathy she can which those Mm -hmm. are kind of like opposed to each other both both sound good alone but when you put them together you're like well how do these work um but but i guess it created like this unique voice um with, like having those kind of opposed principles, I guess, like yeah. gives you a unique voice, which um, which I think kind of comes through with the way that McDormand plays this character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she does, and I think it helps that they're kids, so they're absolutely you know, yeah, they're kids, so there is a sense in which like she is like just by nature of being an older woman that's also Mm -hmm. not french um where she is like she kind of has to be removed and objective 
Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, she she gets involved intimately with uh, Timothy Chalamet's yeah. uh, character, um, which Who's I'm assuming they're... a great addition to this yes. world. The perfect oh, Wes Anderson French person to a French American person as well. So like, it's, it's all the things he was made for to be in a Wes Anderson film about a France, (laughs) a French town. (laughs) For sure. But yeah, so, you know, you have her like representing that kind of like, you know, she's showing empathy, but also object like objectivity, which is like this, you know, weird combination, but somehow like comes through with a unique voice. Yeah. And as you said, because it's she's dealing with youth at the time, it's easier for her to have that empathy, I feel, because she kind of just takes on the role of like, I'm an older person. and I know how these things play out once you get older. So she's trying to just guide them in the right direction and tell them like, hey, this is not going to matter later or this is going to matter. These relationships do and don't um, count for anything. So mm-hmm. she from that like adult perspective, helping these you know, younger people with their, with their views of the world is different than I'm sure if this writer was writing an article about something else that was maybe more in her wheelhouse or with, you know, other adults and stuff. I don't know how that empathy plays out in that situation, but as an adult seeing these like younger people dealing with something that to me is, is an Mm -hmm. easy access point for her to have that empathy and show that point, like that side of her, of her, view and like morals in this situation yeah and it's it's you you get the feel that at times like she feels more motherly but then Mm -hmm. like you get the feeling that she really like she is actually like engaged with their mindset like she sees the like there's there's sort of um there's sort of a like naive narcissism uh and you know she that kind of comes through um uh, in her writing uh, that she sees, but she kind of like respects it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I think the empathy really comes through there um, where you see that, like she's, she's a, she's objective. She's realistic about what's, what can actually come about from, mm-hmm. from everything happening. But also like she appreciates that they, they are seeking like progress that they yeah. are like, they may be naive, but they, they believe in something. Um, yeah. Which I thought was really um, interesting. You know, she has um, that little like monologue at the end is like really beautiful, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to, to read a part of it. She says, uh, you know, in her writing, he is not talking about Chalamet's um, yeah. uh, Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli. Yeah. <laughs> He is not an invincible comet speeding on its guided arc toward the outer reaches of the galaxy in cosmic space-time. Rather, he is a boy who will die young. He will drown on this planet in the steady current of the deep, dirty, magnificent river that flows night and day through the veins and arteries of his own ancient city. His parents will receive a telephone call at midnight, dress briskly, mechanically, and hold hands in the silent taxi as they go to identify the body of their cold son. His likeness mass-produced and shrink-wrapped packaged will be sold like bubblegum to the hero-inspired who hope to see themselves like this, the touching narcissism of the young. And so, like, I don't know, that to me is, like, really beautifully written um, Mm -hmm. and probably, like, very much in the style of Gallant, um, who who wrote the article influencing this. And 
um, yeah, it just kind of touches on like, she's realistic about like the outcome, like, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a, a pessimism and a objectivity to it, but there's also like this deep respect that like he deserves more than like the result that was inevitable. Um, yeah. cause he was, you know, fighting for something. Um, so I, I don't know. Me, I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. To me, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, obviously Glantz like history and everything, but this character, Francis McDormand's character feels to me as though that her pessimism and realism has stemmed from her age and experience, whether she was just like Zaffarelli and also had led a revolution in her youth, or she's just this yeah. is what she's covered throughout so many years. But it seems like the respect, like you said, of someone who thought this way at one point or believed too, and has been worn away by the years and by the obvious results of so many of these things that she's witnessed, but, um, you know, so she knows this is inevitably what happens because this is what's happened time and time again. However, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't, you know, that they shouldn't still try. And the youth, yeah. that is what they're for is to have that blind optimism and belief in themselves and, and, you know, naivety that helps lead something forward, even if it doesn't accomplish its full goal it moves it just a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, it makes me think about like, I, you know, I hope as I get older, um, you know, that I can still find like inspiration in like the, the idealism of like young people, um, mm -hmm. the things that they're, they're fighting for the things that they believe in, you know, I don't want to grow so like jaded and cynical yeah. um, that I can't see, um, you know, like for one, like see in yourself, um, you know, what the youth are doing at, at the time. Um, yeah. Remembering back to like your your kind of like passion when you were young, but um, but also like being inspired to to continue, you know you know, you, you question like, why did Gallant write this article? And then for the story, mm -hmm. why was Kremitz covering this? And I think it's because even with the, the cynicism that can sometimes mm -hmm. come with, with, you know, life, um, as you get older, um, there's still this like, kind of like reaching for, um, that kind of passion and hope and, um, drive for progress that, that young people just kind of have. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and that really comes through in this story um, for me, but then, you know, moving on to the, the last story um, you have the, the Roebuck Wright story, um, which is Jeffrey Wright. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, man, he plays this really well. The, the influences here um, were, you know, I think the big one is James Baldwin um, who, um, I've, I've read a little bit of, and, uh, I've, I've watched some, you know, uh, interviews with him and he, uh, very like Jeffrey Wright, very much like he's not, he's not really doing an impersonation of James Baldwin, but he's mm -hmm. putting on that like very eloquent persona that Baldwin yeah. had, um, which I thought was really well done. Um, but also there is an influence by, um, another New Yorker writer, um, AJ Liebling, um, who, mm -hmm. uh, was kind of like a, uh, I think that what's the term that they used, um, gourmand, 
um, which we would say foodie, I think, yeah. <laughs> um, is the term I would be more likely to use. But gourmand does sound way better than foodie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I read something about Liebling that he wasn't just like a connoisseur of food, but a connoisseur of words, which is really, mm. uh, a really like, uh, I guess, like interesting and profound way to think about um, a writer like that. That's yeah. that does like write a lot about French food. But also, mm -hmm. like, he, he's not just interested in food, but he's interested in, like, how can I, like, work the, you know, work around these words to create something new. I, he's yeah. not making the food, but he is making something unique with his writing um, yeah. and, and the way he uses words. And I think they capture uh, that in this character for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, you... Baldwin, like Baldwin is especially like a huge influence because uh, he left um, America pre uh, civil rights movement uh, mm -hmm. to to go to Paris um, to kind of escape the, the prejudice and, and the racism um, that mm -hmm. was that he was experiencing. Um, and uh, and kind of had this, you know, I think that's why this Roebuck Wright character embodies um, you know, something about James Baldwin so well is because even, you know, he, Baldwin kind of wrote, um, about his time in, in Paris, um, you know, talking about, like we talked about earlier, there's this, like, you get the feeling that this culture has been earned through a long history. And when yeah. you're, you're coming into that culture and not born into it, um, you know, there's a sense in which like, you'll never really belong there because you're not mm -hmm. a part of the, the long history of their experience. Um, and so like, there's a degree to which Baldwin, I think, um, probably, you know, I'm, I'm assuming here, he kind of like had a, a bit of, um, there's a bit of a, like, loneliness obviously that comes through yeah. with this character and with Baldwin but also like you you get the feeling like where do I belong so you know as mm -hmm. an African-American man and um mm -hmm. and even you know at that time I'm I'm pretty sure um I didn't really actually look into this but you you get the quick uh information that you know Roebuck Wright was um was a gay man and yeah. um, I'm pretty sure that that's influenced by Baldwin as well. Yes, I'm, um, pretty, I'm pretty certain of that as um, well. Yeah, I, I don't want to misspeak, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure, but I'm not going to like, yeah, I'm <laughs> not going to put a stamp of like <laughs> yeah, certainty on that. Um, yeah, but so you have a, a double way, you know, in which like, where do I belong? Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I belong in America I'm moving yeah. to Paris, um, which seems more inclusive, but I don't really feel like I belong here. Um, and there's, there's just that feeling of, you know, um, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of a good word for it. Um, you know, you, you feel like a nomad that never doesn't really mm -hmm. belong anywhere. Um, and there's a, there's a sense of like wisdom that comes with that, that comes through yeah. in Baldwin, um, where he's able to remove himself, um, and talk very objectively and eloquently about the realities that he's facing um, because he doesn't feel like he belongs. He can kind mm -hmm. of look at it from an outsider's perspective. 
Um, but also like just this deep melancholy sadness that, that kind yeah. of comes with that feeling, um, which, you know, is something that, you know, I'm, I'm a straight white male American <laughs> and like, you know, that's, that's something that I can't experience. And so no, like yeah. art and film, um, is, is a medium for people like me to like, to empathize with that, to, mm -hmm. to kind of like, try to understand that experience, to try to understand a perspective that I can't have, you know? Um, yeah. and so like, I really, I think that's one of the reasons I really appreciated this, um, segment is because it, it, it gave me, um, you know, the, the famous, uh, there's the, the famous quote from, um, Roger Ebert that movies are empathy machines. Um, yeah. and this was like, I think this was like the engine of the machine for this movie, for me, this story. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's fun. It's really fun to like go through and look and there's a, there's articles where like they get really way into more detail of like more influences on these characters and like yeah. more about those influences. Um, and it's just like this deep well that you can like get lost in, which, which I yeah. love but also don't have enough time for, no time for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, Wes Anderson, he's just, he's just a sponge. He's clearly learned mm -hmm. so much. He's interested in so much. He, he reads and watches and, you know, observes and has been so many places and all of that does come out and stream out. And so of course, if you know a little bit about something, you're like, Hey, that reminds me of whatever. I think that was his influence. And, and like you said earlier, maybe it's not, maybe it's literally just, absentmindedly that just subconsciously came out because mm -hmm. he happened to have had that influence in the past or it was intentional as some of these influences seem to be a little bit more intentional but um but yeah they, he i don't think he'll ever be able to comprehend everything because he just that's a whole catalog of things that you would have to consume in order to just catch up to where he is so that you can right. watch this with that all of that knowledge <laughs> Yeah. And I think that, that all of that makes this one of his most, like, there's, I feel like there's some movies that feel like they should be rewatched to really fully appreciate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is definitely one of those. I feel like that just like begs you to watch it again, to, mm -hmm. to catch something different or connect with something different um, or see something new. Um, you know, there's, there's so much, so much going on here with all the influences and the stories that yeah mm -hmm. um but yeah let's let's talk a little bit uh i wanted to talk about some of the like production um mm -hmm. which i thought was interesting you have um uh the the city uh of angolim that they uh worked in um that sort of became ennui sur blase um yeah. <laughs> um yeah it's so you have angolim west kind of uh, he's really, he really has a knack for like finding, it seems like, um, both like locations that just work so, um, amazingly that are like the right mix of like old and modern that mm -hmm. kind of fit his, his style and atmosphere. Um, and then like these makeshift places to, to build sets, like you have from Moonrise Kingdom, they, they like basically use this old 
department store and built all their sets inside of there. And it's a similar thing here. They, they found this like kind of abandoned factory and they like, they had to start from scratch. Like there was no electricity, like they had to like <laughs> put electricity yeah. in like, and um, it, it was kind of in the center of town. So it was like, you know, a good center point for everything uh, yeah. where they were shooting. They had enough room to build all the sets and also mm -hmm. like the workshops where they would, you know, do costuming and all that. And then the storage for, for, you know, all the, the set building and whatever they yeah. had to store. So it's like, it's really cool. Um, and then Angolim kind of like just temporarily became on <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It became this own little, yeah, it came, it was like this own little Wes Anderson, France. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of France. Um, and I think Wes had said he had never been there before, but it just, um, you know, he visited and it was perfect. Um, Again, he's very lucky to have the budget he does have. Because yes. He, yeah, this one definitely, it sounds like he took on a burden uh, creating all of this from scratch out of abandoned warehouse. Uh, yeah. Without that budget, he, he would not have done it up right the way he did. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I, you know, and, for past episodes, I've made sure to look up the budget, but I forgot to look it up for this one. But it, I know for sure it wasn't one of his most expensive films. Um, yeah, it was, um, you know, it, it wasn't really that all that expensive, I don't think, uh, relative to, to some other things um, like yeah, Life Aquatic was his most most expensive film. Um, but yeah, he, on, it's, it's just fun to like hear them talk about how like it became this little like Wes Anderson French universe for a time. Um, yeah. and like the, even, it even seemed like the people of Angoulême were like, um, Characters just part of it in the story. Um, yeah. yeah I, th I think, I think I read that like over a thousand citizens of Angoulême were, um, I don't know if like necessarily in the movie, but involved in some way, I think, um, yeah. whether it's just working or yeah. like, yeah. Um, and uh, even like the uh, I read or heard or something, the animated sequence that happens in the um, Roebuck right, which is kind mm -hmm. of like a it's kind of like a call to like the uh, Adventures of Tintin comic strips yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of thing. Um, it uh, that was um, animated by uh, people either like living in or studying in Angolim. So oh, that's um, yeah. So like they really like made sure they, which is something I appreciate. They're not just coming in and taking yeah. over, but they're like partnering with the city and the people of the city to, to yeah. make things happen, which, which really, I guess feels very Wes Anderson because, um, it, you know, if you read enough, um, about like the way he makes movies and hear mm -hmm. enough interviews with his cast, um, yeah. It's very much like a family experience. Like yeah. they're staying in the same place. They're eating meals together every night. Um, and uh, it it's kind of this community that he builds, um, you know, and they're all, you know, it's, it's the reason he gets such like star studded cast. Yeah. Every time uh, to come back yeah. and to do very small roles sometimes. Yeah. This one, some people are only in there for a couple of scenes, even though they're large names. Right. And you would think, but you know, they're going to fly out there. They're going to hang out with him and enjoy that very, I guess, camp like atmosphere mm -hmm. that he creates with keeping right. them, and, um, everyone together. 
Yeah, I, I think it was um, Bob Balaban, Bob Balaban, um, who like is barely in the movie at all. But he was um, he was a part of that interview with the Lincoln Center that I had mentioned before. But uh, they kind of asked, like, what, you know, what makes you keep doing Wes Anderson movies? And uh, he kind of said that, well, the um, the kind of jokey reason uh, is that you, if you don't say yes, you're afraid you won't get asked again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, but uh, but he was like, no, the real reason is just because it's it's just it's a joy to do it. Um, and uh, even like Leia Sadu, um, who is a French um she's the one that played Simone in, in the, mm -hmm. the first major main story. Um, mm -hmm. you know, she was just kind of saying like that it, you know, as a French woman, like it did feel like, um, kind of an ode to France or uh, a yeah. love letter to France in a way, um, which I thought was cool to hear from someone that's French that, yeah, yeah it, you know, obviously it's Wes, a Wes Anderson movie, um, mm -hmm. and not a French movie, but it does feel like someone that, you can tell does love France. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I just thought that was really cool. Um, uh, another kind of like side interesting thing. Um, there's, there's this like animated music video that. Yes, um, I saw that. Uh, did you watch it? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's, um, it's the song uh, Alina, which I, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right. That's yeah, what it I sounds no like. Idea. That's what know, it sounds it like, like he's line, singing. But yeah. Yeah. But it's um it's this like 1965 hit by the French artist Christophe who uh -huh. um has this had this kind of like pop hit um yeah. Alina that um Jarvis Crocker who most people probably know he's the guy that sings the little song at the campfire at for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um yes. uh that's that's probably like the most recognizable but he's been in he's He's been in a couple of Wes Anderson movies, but um, yeah, he kind of plays. Yeah, he plays this fictional, which he doesn't ever appear. Um, you just see yeah. a poster of Tip Top. Tip Top. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, it's a fictional musical artist, um, and it, it comes up in the the second story with um, Timothy Chalamet um, and uh, the other. Uh, I'm trying to remember the girl's name. Um, uh. Oh, the girl who plays Juliet. I... Yeah. Oh, Lena. Lena Kudry. Um, I'm probably pronouncing Lina Lena Kudry. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, <laughs> but oh well. Um, but yeah, it's it comes up like in their little scene. You see the poster of them, and they're kind of mm -hmm. arguing about it. But yeah, he he like covers this song. Uh, Crocker does as this fictional tip top uh, mm -hmm. artist, and so that's a that's a fun little call to something French too yeah. um that i thought was fun but yeah if if you're listening and you haven't gone and watched the little music video it's it's really it's fun cute. it's almost like a yeah it's like a ex expose of the whole movie like you oh, see yeah. all the characters i love owen um, wilson's little character riding his bike around following him um as he yeah, sings yeah yeah it's really fun uh it made me smile um and then the song was like stuck in my head for a while uh <laughs> But I don't know French, so I was just like kind of murmuring the tune. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, that, that's a fun little aside um, as just like, you know, it's just like Wes is just like, well, 
we have this song that that appears in the movie by this fictional character. Maybe we should make a music video for it. You know, why not? Might as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you you should definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. But yeah, um, you know, I really want to get into some of the the. You know, I, I'm glad we we've kind of the way we got kind of worked through that was good because we kind of hit some of the really key points, but I do want to get into some other key points. Um, but yeah, I wanted to start, I wanted to ask you, were there any, um, I guess just things that really stood out to you in the movie, whether it was like a theme that, that stuck out or even just like a shot that was really interesting to you that you were like, Oh, wow. Um, yeah. What, is there anything that comes to mind as far as that goes? Um, I kind of mentioned the sparrow portion previously because I did find I loved that whole shot, even with the other guys, his uncles of the art mm-hmm. seller, staring at it and being like, "Are are we too old to understand this? I don't get it. What is this?" Um, and him just being like, "Look, he could he can do art. He can do whatever you actually want him to do, but that's not the point." And that's something that I'm sure all of us, as time goes on, even as I get older. I'm like, yeah, I'm slowly becoming the older uncle who's saying, I don't get this. Why, yeah. why is this good? Um, and then I also love their, the relationship between the, well, the idea of the relationship between the guard and the prisoner and the, mm-hmm. the way I think I saw in something else that it was talking about just needing, needing oppression and needing um, kind of some turmoil in your own life to create art and seeing that kind of play out of of even when he tells her he loves her and she says no and he looks yeah. up at the ceiling and then all of a sudden it comes into vivid color which is also a fun aspect of of this movie in particular is every time color bursts back into the scene after a black and white shot um but of just being you know obviously this is a horrible moment for him this woman he loves just told him like no i don't love you no stop and he's just looking up at the ceiling in, you know, misery and then sees a masterpiece in, you know, in the prison ceiling and continues to create and all of the moments in which he is at the end of his wits. And then that is when, you know, color and life burst forth and new ideas and something to work for and to create sparks in him. So I, I find that interesting and when i watched it you know the second time and the third time um seeing those moments and them standing out even more to me like just even the really taking in when is it switching from black and white to color and when are these you know Mm -hmm. moments where you're supposed to to pay attention and like really listen this is the point here um kind of bursts forth in this whole movie but specifically in that storyline yeah uh you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, definitely those shifts and, and I'll, I'll probably talk about that in a minute too. Um, but yeah, the, the way that just like, um, I guess misery, depression, or like, uh, trauma, those sorts of things can create beauty. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's something that, um, that's kind of been, you kind of see that in a lot of Wes Anderson movies, how yeah. like the, the depression of these characters leads to, you know, it kind of creates uh, sparks of, of beauty in them somehow. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think it really does. Um, I think that is a, a huge emphasis here um, on how just like the the way that life sometimes can be miserable um, can create beauty. Um, and it makes me think um, I, I've always felt like um, and this is probably just like the the kind of, um, I guess, melancholy personality that I can have, you know, um, yeah. is like the most to me, some of the most beautiful songs are the ones mm-hmm. that come out of like the saddest circumstances um, For sure. or or albums. Um, like I remember when um, when when Ghost Stories by Coldplay came out mm-hmm. um you know, he wrote that song kind of out of his divorce and his his longing for that love lost. Uh, but but it was like I remember like listening to it on a long drive in my car and just feeling like overwhelmed by it um, and the, the yeah. beauty of the music, um, but also like the this deep sadness of it um, yeah. and just, you know. Uh, that's one of the things that always comes to mind when thinking about how like sometimes the, the most, um, I don't know, the most horrible experiences can create beauty. Um, uh, and I think that's a very, like, I think that is a very human thing. Like, how can I take this horrible thing and, um, and make something beautiful, create something beautiful out of it? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's through art or just, um, you know, if for people that aren't like creators in that way in yeah. art, but like, how can I take this horrible thing that's happened to me and process it in a way that I can like do something beautiful with my life, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, do something different and new and uh, unique or, you know, or even just like, the the act of like processing something that's miserable or that was traumatic the act mm-hmm. of just processing that and making it through it can be beautiful too um, yeah and, and just I think not that's a... falling into that cynicism or or pessimism and and keeping for going forward and like looking to the future even if it's not as hopeful now but to keep going and to do something different mm-hmm. or new or just put one foot in front of the other is the, you know, beauty of it all, even if it's ordinary life and not, you know, some masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even like, you know, just processing through the cynicism, like mm-hmm. not, like not necessarily even like ignoring it or like trying to get past yeah. it, but like um, just being in that and uh, still like creating, whether that's, you know, art or something else, you know, I think, I think there's a sense in which it's, um, it's human to create is human. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, we don't all, we usually think of like art or like building things as creating, but you know, we all create in different ways. Um, you know, through our, you know, careers or just the way, you know, the way we live, um, you know, we create relationships, uh, uh, connections there, there, you know, and so I think that's definitely a through line in this is creating creating things beautiful out of bad situations. And I, I definitely think that oppression um, creating um, 
art or being like kind of like the the jumping off point. Um, you know, uh, I, I must have read something very similar or maybe the same thing as you about like artistic expression being um, like a reaction to oppression. Um, yeah. So like you definitely have That's that. That's also with... very French. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, America, I feel like is kind of like always a step behind Europe as far as stuff like that goes. Um, but yeah, it, it's a oppression being like a jumping starting off point to artistic per, uh, expression. You know, if you do like, just think back through all the great artists, there is a sense in which there is, you know, some of it comes out of affluence, but there's also like, whether it's like oppression as deep as like, you know, actually being imprisoned or an impression yeah. of like, I have these, you know, you think about Mozart, like Mozart wasn't like, he wasn't like out of, coming out of poverty or anything, but he had these ways of expressing himself that were very much like not socially acceptable. Yeah. Um, and so like, yeah. there's, there's an oppression in that, in that sense of like, I have these things inside of me that I need to get out, but mm -hmm. society tells me I can't do it. I can't do that. Or I can't do it mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, that, that sort of oppression comes through in the second story, I feel like, mm -hmm. um, yeah. where you have these, you know, it's not like these French, like, uh, kids are like coming, they're not like poverty. They're at this nice school, yeah. um, you know, that, but there's a sense in which like they have these dreams and aspirations, like, yeah, it's, it's comes through in like a trivial way. And like the whole reason being like, they can't go into each other's dormitories. Like that's yeah. the trivial reason. But then you have the sequence where the boys are talking about like, you know, I'm just going to have to become like my father. Exactly. Like my father. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that so whole sequence is really good as well. Yeah. Also and, really you know, sad, but very well, well done. Yeah. I mean, you have the, the, the kid jumping uh, out the window and that at the end of that sequence. And it, it just goes to show that like oppression has, you know, there's, there's some forms that are like obviously more brutal and more, um, I don't know, like, I guess you could say objectively worse than others. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. also like oppression does come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and, as and if bad this is in, your view of form. the world, then it is still oppression to you. You know, obviously right. somebody else, of course, like always, somebody else may have it worse, but if this is your view of the world, and this is angering you, this is hurting you, this is whatever, then that is still the way you feel and how you view your world. And even that kid does say, like, I can no longer envision myself as a grown up in my parents' world. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, this is the world I know, but I, I can't imagine it any longer. I can't imagine myself playing part of this. And even right. though it's honestly a pretty cushy world, it still is, is him being somehow different or un like disengaged from that world and therefore feeling oppressed within that environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you definitely get that in the last story, you know, you think about Roebuck Wright um, and his comparison with uh, James Baldwin, um, you know, you have this, um, this sense of like, 
especially like in conjunction with the other stories. And I think this is where they can add to each other, even though they're separate stories. You know, you mm -hmm. think about in the first story, you have this artist who, you know, doesn't really fit in with society. He has, he is a bit of like, he is a, has a bit of psychopath to him. Um, you know, <laughs> he, gra he growls at people like, yeah. um, and like he is like, he did murder some people. Um, yeah. you know, you get this, you get the sense that he did it kind of out of a, a bit of a righteous anger, but also like he went far beyond that too. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and you know, he's literally imprisoned. Um, mm -hmm. but then you, you jump to the Roebuck Wright character, um, you know, who I guess is like literally imprisoned at some point in a flashback, but, yeah. um, but at this point in his life, um, you know, and even as a writer, um, you know, you get the sense that, oh, okay, it, you know, you don't have to be like a psychopathic murderer, um, you know, artist guy to lose your freedom. Um, yeah. You can just, you can just be perfectly who you are, you know, a, a gay black American man and just have no sense of, of freedom, of liberty, mm -hmm. um, just because of you know, who you are. Um, and you know, the, the, the deep sadness that you get that comes out of that, um, yeah. you know, is just, it, you know, it's, it's moving. And I think it's a, a connection point through, through all these stories for sure. But, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, we had talked about the kind of, or you had more, you had talked about the like <laughs> switches from black and white to color and stuff. Yes. Um, and that was, uh, that was something that like stood out to me on this watch, uh, for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of trying to take note of when it happened and like, just kind of thinking through like, what's the, what's going on here? Like, what's the, the point? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it seems like, uh, and I did read, read kind of some thoughts from other people, which there are, you know, people kind of have different takes on it, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I would say the one that stood out to me most, um, what, and it's not that it stood out to me most, it was just, or I guess that's a way of putting it, I guess it just like, it's probably one of the quickest ones, but also like one that was just like, whoa. Um, kind of a, a moment that kind of like, you know, slaps you in the face. Uh -huh. Um, and it's when, um, it's a pretty, like it seemingly insignificant moment of, uh, it's in the Roebuck Wright story. Um, and it's in like the dramatization of him. It's, uh, the little boy, you know, that has gotten kidnapped and yes. he's in the closet and, um, Sorcerer Ronan's character, which I don't remember her name. Um, but uh, she's, you know, kind of sitting outside the closet, kind of keeping watch mm -hmm. over where where they have him kind of locked in the closet. And there's yes. like a little um, there's a little like flap where she can look through. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they're uh, they're talking uh, her and the boy. And it's, um, you know, she I can't remember what prompts it. I don't know if you remember what prompts her to look through the hole at him. I think he asked her, doesn't he ask her what color eyes she has or something? It it seems or... like it's something like that. Something um, like that. Yeah. But, um, 
Because it's before she, she starts singing the lullaby, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it. And so, um, you know, I, I probably should have um, watched back to to be sure. But yeah, she she looked like he asked her something to the effect of like, what color are your eyes or something like that. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a black and white sequence, um, this whole sequence. Mm -hmm. And there's this quick moment where it's from his perspective, looking out of the flap, she opens the flap and it goes to color. And there's these like vibrant blue eyes, like looking back at him. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know, that really stood out to me. And it's like, why didn't he make that choice? Um, you know, and... the first time I watched that in the theater, I remember thinking that is, I, it stood out to me as well, because it's just so, her eyes are so bright blue at that moment. But it makes me think of The Great Gatsby, which I don't know if you were going to bring that up at all. But mm -mm. it makes me think of The Great Gatsby, in which every time they cross over from the island into the city, they pass the big billboard with the blue eyes and they like, you know, they kind of like show it as the eyes of God watching over all of this. So that's the first thing I thought of was the great Gatsby and that visual as well. That is on some of even the covers of some of that, you know, the version of great Gatsby books. Um, and that absolutely yeah, stands out to me as being such like a moment and scene in this movie of mm -hmm. just vibrancy. Yeah, and uh, it was almost like, um, I don't know, you know, I feel like sometimes there's a point to those things. Um, and I think there probably was like a reasoning that Wes had for doing it. Um, but uh, but also like Wes is pretty like famous for like uh, answering questions like that in interviews of why did you do this? He's, you know, he'll just say like, oh, I just like had the idea and I thought it would look good and it did. Yeah. So we, we kept it that way. Um, yeah. and, um, but it's almost like, I guess like to me, I'm thinking of like the perspective of this child, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, looking through, looking at, you know, this girl's eyes and it's just, this like, it's almost like it could be just, he's a young boy. He's, he kind of seems like the age where you start thinking about as a boy, like, do I like girls kind of yeah. thing? And like, it's this beautiful uh, woman. And, uh -huh. you know, he asks her like kind of a mature question, like what are the color mm -hmm. of your eyes? And she looks through and there's this, this beauty and vibrancy to it. Um, and it's mm -hmm. almost like, maybe it's just like this boy's perspective. Um, yeah seeing like a woman's beauty and just like, appreciating the beauty for what it is. Yeah. And I think that's okay. Like, I feel like a lot of, a lot of times, like both as just like movie watchers and, you know, especially as like, if you put on your critic hat or whatever, yeah, like you, you want to like, um, think about like, well, there has to be a point to this, yes. but sometimes like, things just existing and like being beautiful is reason enough for it to exist. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's sort of like what's happening in a, a bit in this moment. Like mm -hmm. maybe there's not like some great grand, like thematic point to mm -hmm. um, that, that choice of black and white to color change. Maybe it's just like this boy thought it was beautiful. And so Wes emphasized the beauty that he saw. Um, 
And I think that is, you know, taking that thought and like looking back on all of those changes, I think that is one of the, the kind of like themes that happens with that, that choice to switch back and forth from color to black and white. Um, It seems like whether it's someone in the story or the person telling the story, it's like, Mm -hmm. what did they see beauty in? Um, And that's that's when those, those moments of color will pop pop. And like, you even think about like the, um, you think about the, the second story, Um, you know, obviously we talked about the first one. It's like when there's those moments, like, like I think about um, when, they walk into the prison to see like the finished product and yeah. it's um, and it's uh, Simone like turning around and this, that, that widescreen of the, mm-hmm. um, which is another thing the aspect ratio changes, but um, that widescreen of the whole like piece of art um, and it's in color for it. It's not very long. It's like a few seconds and then it goes back to black and white, yeah. but yeah. So you definitely have that in the first story of like, this is what the storyteller thought was beautiful, most beautiful, or even like the perspective of, um, of maybe the character in the story. Um, but yeah, in the second one, even like, it's almost like every moment, every time there's a moment where she's really, it seems like as an author is really appreciating, um, like we kind of talked about like that em- empathizing with the youth of these kids. So like yeah. moments where like it's, uh, it's Chalamet, um, well, Zeffirelli and, uh, Juliet, whenever mm-hmm. they're not arguing, whenever there's like moments of connection, it'll, it'll yeah. turn to color. Um, which I thought was really cool. It's like her, you know, and she, you know, even though she has that kind of intimate connection with Zeffirelli, like in the, the end of the day, that's what she wants is for them to go yeah, be yeah. kids and, and have that romantic, like fleeing together. Um, and so like that's emphasized in color, but also like um, when she's kind of when there's that whole like big set piece, like almost like a play, um, a stage mm-hmm. play production of thinking back on like how youth kind of spend their time in these coffee shops and like um, the way they live. It's like her thinking back to like what it's like to be youth. And that's, it switches to color for that sequence. And it's this vivid like stage production kind of like sequence. Um, And it's because like her as a writer, like that was very a vivid time in her life. Like she sees that time as like very beautiful and meaningful. And so like, Mm -hmm it switches to color for that sequence. So I think that is like a big thing happening with, with these um, switches from color to black and white. Uh, I think I read someone else talk about like um, when progress is being made, it switches to to color, um, which I I thought was another. Yeah. I thought that was another interesting way to think about it. Um, That's not what I thought I was you know, what we've just been talking about is kind of what I was thinking. Um, but the progress is interesting because, um, uh, yeah, that's another interesting way to think about it. And it Um, at times could coincide with the beauty because the progress could be the creation of something, the connection mm -hmm. with one another and all of those moments. So technically I feel like those two thoughts could like, you know, be hand in hand, but I think that 
what I noticed with this viewing of it is that in Owen Wilson's portion, when they're showing the city in the past and the city presently, it does say, it doesn't say present. It says the past and the future and the past is in black and white. The future, which is what we assume is currently, but it's referred to as the future is in color. So I feel like that also could lend to that belief or that thought process of like, okay, well, yeah, the progress, the future, the the forward movement is mm-hmm. the color parts and all of the black and white is the maybe the old way of thinking or, you know, just somebody's actual personal history and past. Yeah, I didn't even catch that, that it was like, it didn't say the present. Yeah, that's, no. yeah, that's really I interesting. That was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I think something else that I was thinking of too. So you think about like, the actual stories being dramatized. Um, there's a lot of like switches from color to black and white within those. But then mm-hmm. whenever you go out, like go out into like the actual, like storytellers telling the story, it's, yes. it's almost always in color. I think mm-hmm. it is always in color. Um, I think the only one that changes a little bit is um, the last uh, row book. Right. I feel like his, sometimes is in black and white, but not necessarily like when they show him and um, how it's are talking about the story, it's in color. Right. When they show him talking, sometimes it goes to black and white. But his is yeah. to me all over the place. But then of course you also have the illustrations in there. So that whole story and sequence really bounces around oh, when yeah. it comes there's, to the style. There's a lot going on there. I think So I think, um, you know, yeah, there's moments where, he is so i think the only moment where he's like sitting in the chair that it goes to black and white is when it kind of like focuses in on him and and it's almost as if like it's an aside um yeah. like it's not actually like him telling a story like telling the story uh, yeah. like in the act of storytelling it's like this like like little side monologue um and like deeper meaning and like his own personal turmoil and thoughts versus it being the actual story that he's telling the world and it it kind of like to me it almost emphasizes like okay we're we're stepping out of this this isn't a side this you know we're stepping out of him as a storyteller and like looking into like who he is like yeah in a deeper way like you're saying um and then to like the cut to black and white there even emphasizes like that loneliness and melancholy yeah like the yeah. vibrancy goes away uh, mm-hmm. when, you know, it's, it's is it when he's answering the question of why? I think that's, I think that's when it is. It seems yeah. like. When he's talking about why, I think it's during that whole session where he's talking about eating meals by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that little monologue is the part that yeah. I think it's the only part that's black and white. Like I said, that one is kind of all over the place. So it's hard to clock every single shift, yeah. but I'm pretty sure that's the only monologue in which it cuts to black and white on him in those scenes (laughs) yeah so even then it's like cutting away from the act of storytelling yeah that that it's not in color and so to me like if you thinking back on like okay why these color moments or moments that are um that the storyteller or the character in the story thinks are beautiful um Mm -hmm. or meaningful and so like then you cut, then you take a step back. So there's, you know, there's kind of like layers and framing devices in mm-hmm. this similar to like the way that there was in Grand Budapest and, you know, 
with Asteroid City coming out, you know, we'll talk about yeah. how that happens there too. But, um, you know, you step one layer out to the storytellers and you see, okay, why are they, why is the color in black and white changes happening for them? But then you can even take one more step out and look at it from like, okay, but there's a storyteller telling the, the stories about the storytellers and it's Wes, yeah. you know, it's Wes and his co-writers. So like, why are the, why are the writers in color? Well, it's because like Wes to him, the beauty, the beauty for him is the act of storytelling, yeah. the act of talking in your unique voice and mm -hmm. getting your story out there in the world. Um, the story that you want to tell, um, this information that you want to, to like put down on paper. Um, yeah. and so like, yeah, there's, you know, there's those layers to how that's applied. And I think that is why, like for him, um, those are like all of the storyteller moments, um, yeah. are in color because to him that there's beauty um, in, yeah. in the, the act of storytelling, but also like the process, you know, you have the, mm -hmm. the all the moments with the editor, um, mm -hmm. and in the, the kind of magazine offices are in color. So, you know, I don't know if he necessarily like planned that, but, but for me, that's like something that I was thinking about, okay, if we take another layer out, why, yeah. why are all these in color? But, but yeah, I could be, that could be just like, he just did it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, I think but, that that's a good theory. <laughs> Cause yeah. I, I mean, it does make sense. I like that. And that's clearly kind of what he's getting at in this whole, whole production overall is the beauty of storytelling and his personal appreciation for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, just thinking about like, so that's just one example of how like all the abstractions he makes um, to give this like very surreal um, yes. atmosphere. Um, you know, you have the changes from color to black and white. You have yes. the changes in aspect ratio, which are a, a, a lot more sporadic. Um, mm -hmm. In Grand Budapest, they were like almost like frames for the different time periods. Um, mm -hmm. but, but here they're, they're, they're not used to like show a period or a time, but almost like a feeling. Um, yes. yeah. and, and so that's another interesting abstraction. Um, you know, I wrote down a ton of stuff. You have lighting changes, you have characters, uh, speaking different languages to each other, mm -hmm. but not, not like, you know. English person, the American speaks English and the French person responds in French and vice versa. Yes. Um, you have, um, you know, you have, uh, mixtures of miniatures and live action, you know, uh, which, you know, I think the main one is, um, Owen Wilson, yeah. like standing in front of like the construction zone. Um, mm -hmm. that's like a miniature, but he's, um, he's kind of standing, I guess, perspective, the way it's shot perspective wise. Yeah. You know, so there's that like abstraction happening. Um, there's just so many. There's, yeah, I already mentioned the aspect ratios. Um, you have like characters like being normal in the way that they're filmed. And then sometimes they're looking at the camera. Yeah. Um, you have uh, care. You have moments where like characters freeze in time. Like there's mm -hmm. like yes, your whole scenes where everyone is frozen. Yeah. And, and it's not like argument or whatever it might be. 
Yeah, and it's not um it's not like he take he takes a frame and just no. keeps on that frame. You can tell cuz they're not keeping perfectly still. No. Um, and I which, love that little detail. Yeah. Which goes back to like the the stage play kind of aspect of the yes. way what he's doing here, which he's you can tell he's always loved stage plays. He you know, mm-hmm. he wrote them and directed them when he was in in high school. Um, yeah. And that's kind of stuck with that aspect is stuck with his creativity um, mm-hmm. with, you know, which you can see all the way back, especially to Rushmore. Um, but yeah, it, you know, and um, it's it's all like. I don't know, I, I wrote down more. There's geographical <laughs> like oddities where you don't like the same room looks different in different shots like yeah that doesn't make much sense um you have the switches from like a handheld cam when there's like action happening back to like the still camera um yeah it there yeah there's just so much the one of the one of the main ones that's like really like a uh feels very new um for this one is um is a very like stage production uh stage play thing which is like you'll have characters like in like being still in this in this like in the frame yes um but the set is moving around them so we talked about it with owen wilson the one that stands out to me is um zeffirelli and juliet uh right after mm-hmm. they're having the argument about tip top um and yes. tip, you know she says tip top's like just a commercial like uh-huh. uh, nothing it doesn't mean anything and she wants to put the poster up of um, you know, it's kind of like he's, you get the sense he's a like important philosopher or something. Yeah. And, something. uh, yeah. Zeffirelli goes to the jukebox and like starts playing the, the Alina song by tip top. And, uh, you know, this, the walls literally like come out, move like, away. yeah, yeah, move <laughs> away and more different set pieces move in just like they would like on a stage play. Um, yeah. which, or even I when, um, Moses is, um, his wheelchair gets hit and you just see like the pieces of the wheelchair flying away like (laughs) one by one. And it's obviously not the wheelchair. It's literally people holding, you know, the Mm -hmm. various props moving them away. Yeah. Yeah. And you can even watch behind the scenes that, you know, of them people with a green screen, like with those pieces of the wheelchair on sticks, like doing (laughs) this with it, which is something that like, if you were doing a stage play, like that's how you would do it. Um, And like, yeah, you, like you know it's not real but it's it's fun and it's interesting um but yeah so like all of that i feel like one of the reasons that all of that is so prevalent here there's so many abstractions which they're other than like the big set piece moves which Mm -hmm. is something that i feel like really is new for this one um wes has done all this stuff before but it's very prevalent and in your face here which I think yeah. is why like a lot of people are turned off by this movie um, just because there's so much going on here with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think there is a point to it. And I think one of the big reasons he does this is because it mirrors how writing works. Um, mm. This is very much um, an ode to the New Yorker, but also just like the act of writing and um, the importance of, of writing and the process of writing and when you read a book, like when you read a book or an article or whatever, um, it functions very much in these ways. Like you do have 
in your writing, you can write and freeze a moment and really like examine all the details that are happening Mm -hmm. in that moment. Just like Wes does in that scene where he freezes everybody in frame and kind of pans across and you can like, you can literally look at all the details of what's happening um, just like you could in writing. Um, Mm -hmm. You can, I mean, like thinking about the, the switch from black and white to color, you can have like just the narrative where you're writing, but then you can switch in tone and style and really like make mm-hmm. something very vivid and emphasize something in your writing. Just, yeah. and you know, the parallel would be like maybe the switches from black and white to color or the switch yeah. to a different aspect ratio or perspective. Um, you know, you switch, you switch for perspectives from like the third party viewer to like, we were saying like the little boy looking out the window mm-hmm. at Sorcerer Ronan's eyes you know, yeah. all of that is stuff that you can do in writing, like seamlessly. Um, yeah. But for some reason, like no one wants to do that in movies. And Wes is like, yeah. no, I'm going to do it in a movie. Yeah, it's very acceptable in a novel for you to get to a breaking point. There might be a physical break in the page or it might tell you the next perspective that we're looking from. It might give you a whole page with a different character's name. And you now know we're you know, speaking from their point of view. But yeah, in a movie, that's kind of a no-no or it's just weird. It doesn't, you know, come off correctly. And in this, he does kind of have to overemphasize it in order to show you this is the switch. This is Mm -hmm. the story and how it plays out and all the aspects we're analyzing as we're telling it. Yeah. And I think it does. It, it, It just feels like he part of why he's doing all this is because he loves the act of writing in the process mm-hmm. of writing. And he's like, why can't I do the same yeah. sorts of things in, on film that you can do in writing um, in a novel or in an article? Yeah. And um, yeah, I just love that. I think it's really cool. Um, yeah. Um, there were, yeah, we, we've, we've really talked about a lot about some of the stuff that I had written down, down here. Yeah. As we um, went throughout. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, look behind the curtain, you know, I have an outline that I try to write down a bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, and so, um, I'm, yeah, I'm scrolling down and you're like, man, it really feels like we've covered a lot of this, um, already. And so I think what we'll do is go, uh, into the final thoughts, uh, for this film. Um, and I really feel like, one of the things, so, you know, I, I mentioned that the one that really feels like an emotional connection, um, and like kind of puts a bow on everything for me is that it's, it's really like the Roebuck Wright story as a whole, but really mostly because it, it all leads to that moment where, uh, you have, um, you have him like going through the story with Anthony Horowitz Jr., the editor, Mm -hmm. which, um, which come to think of it, like one of the things there that I love with that character is Bill Murray does an excellent job with it, um, with the acting there, but also like just that sense of knowing that I have someone that's going to fight for me to, to create in the way that I need to create, um, Mm -hmm. is just really cool. Um, and I think, um, really meaningful, just another way that he, um, you know, he shows the love of writing and the process of writing 
is just yeah. that character um, fighting for his writers and like trying to push them forward and like having critiques, but also like knowing that my critique, I might have to lay my critique aside and let this person be who, who they are in their writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it just makes me feel like, man, I want to be that way for other people. Like, yeah, I'll have my disagreements with how it should be done, but you know, let's let them create in their own yeah. unique way, you know, and he, he has that kind of generic saying, um, that he says to everyone, uh, the oh, whole, yeah. uh, uh, how does it go? Um, uh, make, make it sure. Seem... Yeah. Go ahead. Um, it says, uh, just try to make it look, or just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. Yeah. 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 That's it. Um, yeah. Which is like, a generic way of saying like, you know, I think I read that Wes kind of um, uh, said that he was trying to think of a way that you could um, encourage uh, a wide variety of types of writers <laughs> with yeah. a, with a single saying. And that's kind of what he came up with. Um, yeah. So it's really just a way of saying like, you know, be confident in your own voice, mm-hmm. um, which is, it's almost like Wes is saying like, Hey, you know, you might not like the way I make films, but this is how I like to do it. And I'm confident in my own voice. And even like, I feel like, you know, saying to other creators, um, you know, Hey, like you don't, you don't have to like bend. You can, you can speak in your own unique voice and your creation. But yeah, um, that was a little bunny trail to fault that I followed that I remembered. But yeah, going back to that that Roebuck right moment, it's really like when he's sitting down with um, Horowitz Jr. and mm-hmm. Horowitzer Jr. and um, you know he's you know he's kind of asking as an editor like, is this the whole story? And did you leave anything out? And it's almost like he you you can tell that uh, Horowitzer can tell that he didn't leave it all on the on the paper. Yeah. Um, or why would he be asking that question? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he kind of tells the, the little aside moment that he has with the chef, um, with Mm -hmm. with their little exchange and, uh, cut, you know, it cuts back to him with, with Horwitzer and, uh, you know, he's saying like, no, this, that's the whole reason for this article to exist, um, Mm -hmm. is that moment. And you, you even almost get the feeling that like, so to me, the the reason that I love that story the most is because it feels like that moment is the reason for this movie movie to exist too. Um, mm-hmm. y- you know, it's it's this. It kind of sums up everything about why this movie exists and has the you know the feel that it does. Um, and yeah, it, you know, you have it's that moment where uh, right. Um, you know, it, it's the chef, uh, so like, you know, in the story, the chef puts the poison in the food and he yes. eats, he eats the poison, um, mm-hmm. so that the, the, that the kidnappers will eat it too. Yeah. Um, and he's laying there kind of, um, you, you know, you're not sure if he's going to make it or not. Yeah. And, uh, Roebuck Wright is there with him and he says, you know, I'm, I admire your bravery, Lieutenant. And uh, it's uh, Nescafier is the character's name. 
the chef. He says, I'm not brave. I just wasn't in the mood to be a disappointment to everybody. I'm a foreigner, you know. And Robach Wright says, the city is full of us, isn't it? I'm one myself. And this is the line um, that Nescafier says, seeking something missing, missing something left behind. And that uh, that was really like a touching moment um, because you have these two very different people um, mm-hmm. that are that are both like, but they both have this connection in that they're both foreigners. They're both kind of don't like they they appreciate where they are and they're a part of where they are, but they don't feel like they belong. Um, yeah. And you know that that line. Um, seeking something missing and missing something left behind. I feel like encapsulates like the feeling of this movie and the feeling of the endeavor of writing. Like you're, you're Mm -hmm. especially like, um, you know, the, the, the connection point there is them being a foreigner. Um, and, you know, thinking about what does it mean to be a foreigner? What does it mean? What does it feel like? What does it change in you and your perspective? Um, and, um, you know, I think there's a degree to which at some point in everyone's life that there is that feeling, um, whether you're actually in another country or not, but you have that experience of, I like I'm here, you know, you may have like never moved away from your hometown, but you, you can still have that feeling of being a foreigner, feeling like you're, you're missing something feeling like, you know, you're seeking something that's missing. And it's like, it feels like you were meant to have it, something that you were like left behind, which in their case, they literally have left things behind because they've moved to another place. Um, But just like existentially that feeling that we all can have of kind of a longing for a place where we can actually like belong and fully be ourselves um, mm-hmm. is I think a very like broadly human experience. Um, and, um, you know, there, you know, he asks him, you know, uh, or I don't remember if he asked him anything, but the Nescafier, the, the chef says, um, you know, I take, there was a flavor and writes mm-hmm. like, what, what? And he's like, there was a flavor in the poison. It was something new that I've never tasted yeah. before. And, uh, he kind of says, you know, that's, that's rare at my age. Um, and I, you know, I think that's another like little beautiful little thought. Um, but I think it, it coincides with this idea of, you know, the older you get, like the younger you are, the more, um, I guess the more connected you feel with that sense of like, this world isn't how it's supposed to be. It's that, that seeking something missing, like what's missing in this world. I want I want to fight for what's missing in this world. I want to fight yeah. to make the world um, feel like, you know, it it should be. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the older you get, the, the rarer it is kind of to have that feeling just by being jaded by mm-hmm. life and happenstance and just, you know, your experiences. Um, and Scaffier just saying, like, it had a flavor something new um you know it's that that thing that that sparks like even in as you get older of like that longing for 
things to be, you know, it's that taste of the way things should be. Um, you know, even in this like poison, he, mm-hmm. there was something there that made him, you know, find, like, think of a reason to exist, think of a reason to live. Yeah. Um, and there is that through line through all of these stories, like, um, you know, finding these things on earth that hearken to something missing, something left behind, um, that I think really come through in that moment with uh, Wright and Nescafier that kind of encapsulate the whole thing. And I, and I really do think that line for me just like puts a bow on the movie. Like, yeah, why are these writers writing? Why is West writing this movie? What, like, what's going on? What's the through line through all of this? And there's more than just this, but this is just what stood out yeah. to me. And it's that idea of, you know, that, you know, obviously pe- people like you and like me that haven't like lived for extended period of times being a foreigner. Yeah. Like um, still can have that same experience because Wes is connecting with something more broadly human than like, maybe he even realizes here um, that, you know, I just, I really connected with and, um, and thought was really a beautiful part of the movie. But, Mm -hmm. but yeah, that was kind of my final thought. Did you have any thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, that, that thought is great and definitely stood out to me as well. That was very poignant moment. And for me, kind of, for me, what really wrapped it all back up was to, you know, kind of zoom back out and go back to the actual obituary and back to the story and kind of mm. at the ending when all of the writers are coming together, we've now met their connection. We've now met them through their storytelling and for them all to be in the same room to write about this man that they all like love and respected and who clearly respected them. And I think even just for them to remind um is it, oh, I can't remember the actress's name. Is it is her name Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. For and even them to say again, even though he's passed, and obviously that's awful, for them to tell her like no crying, like this yeah. is they're still in his office. No, they're in his office. We're being respectful. This is our connection. This is who our champion was, and you know mm-hmm. we're we're gonna do this right. And I loved that. And then obviously that as they're speaking, you hearken back to the very first lines and, you know, it really comes full circle. And I, I loved that moment. And I loved, like, as you said, he is a champion for them. He's a champion in like theory and in metaphor for all artists and writers and creators. Um, So I appreciate them kind of showing the respect for their process and the respect for one another as creators. Um, So for me, that was a great, wrap up and kind of final thought that's what i was kind of left with as i walk out of the theater as i end the movie because you know that's what's bringing it back around and i'm like yeah that's you know that's such a good final moment for this whole kind of crazy multi-story bouncing all around kind of movie um i really appreciate that yeah and i really think um yeah man the just the community like uh, that you can see in that moment, uh, really Mm -hmm. comes through. And, um, you know, I think that parallels with the, the community that Wes creates, um, in, in, in his creation of like, um, 
you know, you're they're in that moment, they're, they're kind of connecting through their grief, but also, um, through their, their purpose, um, and mm -hmm. in their, in their creation process. And, you know, you get the sense that from both Wes and like all the people that work with him and do interviews that like, that's the atmosphere that happens on set with him. And, you know, I would, I would imagine like a lot of, uh, just creation processes in general yeah. that happen with, you know, big, cast and crews or whatever of just this moment of uh, this community like when when we make this and get it done like the the fact that we made it is enough like whether people go for it or not um is just like can be extra um but yeah. there's a sense of pride um and and community that um that is beautiful and wonderful just from having made this thing together um, yeah. that I think really comes across in this movie um, and just through like the background of, you know, these movies being made um, too. So yeah, that, that's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Getting to uh, ratings, the, the most um, meaningless point of this whole endeavor, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is ratings, um, you know, uh, uh it's just so subjective and, and for sure uh but but i love doing it so um <laughs> so yeah uh i well i'll let you go first because you said this was your your favorite wes anderson from what yes. you've seen this um, is definitely my favorite from what i've seen um so i don't really know and i have you know seen like asteroid city which has you know been kind of hyped up so i feel like i've I've kind of seen where he's at now. Um, mm -hmm. Also seen Grand Budapest Hotel, another one that's like also just like big on the on the list. So I feel like I've seen the two kind of most shouted out ones, um, but this one still holds it down for me. I just think that I, I mean, I just love the style of it, which is everything at, all at once. Um, all the things. <laughs> all the things. I really enjoy that. Um, there's so much movement and like bouncing back and forth. And I found like so much comedy and interest in so many small things versus it actually intending to be fully funny. Um, I found it such mm -hmm. a quirky film. I mean, they all are, but this one particularly is so quirky and just its own little moment. And I just yeah love it for that. But so for yeah. me, this is, you know, a five out of five. It's great. But I'm also just a generous raider in general. I'm not... Yeah. I'm not giving. I appreciate that. I mean, if I liked it, I'm not gonna not gonna dog on it, even if there <laughs> might be aspects. But who am I to say? Again, this is his creation, which is another reason I feel like giving it a five is because it really feels like something I can't judge because it is. It feels so something from him and from his place as a creator, and I'm not a director or a movie writer or anything like that, so. For me, I'm like, I respect it. And I, I got a lot out of it. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, that's something that I've always, uh, appreciated, like with your, um, which I'll let you plug, uh, your, I, your Instagram <laughs> at the end. Yeah. But, um, but like, it seems like every movie and you like, you do mostly just like, um, current stuff. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, uh, yeah. on there and, um, like I almost never see you give anything like a low rating, which, which I appreciate because it, 
it's hard to like when people put on their critic hats, it's easy to like not find the good in every movie. And like, that's something I appreciate is that you, you seem to find like something good in every movie, which is, uh, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's a task in and of itself sometimes because some movies, you know, are more difficult to find the good in. (laughs) There are some movies that are kind of, wow, that was a bit of a waste of my time. However, I think most movies like, if it had some entertaining moments or some moments that made you think, then at the end of the day, didn't they accomplish their job and shouldn't they get at least a three out of five or higher? That's that's always yeah. where I stand. If you got below a three, then I, it was really rough for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm similar. I, I, like I know some people are like way more um, ungenerous with their ratings, but um, yeah, but uh, I like I have. I know some people that are like very stingy with fives. Like they, they might like have 10 or less five out of five movies. And I'm, I'm just like, man, if something just like connects with me and I just like absolutely love it, like I'm giving it, I'm giving it the five, but that wasn't this one. I I gave this one a four (laughs) out of five. Um, Still solid. uh, It's not one of my favorite Wes Anderson's. It's one that I like, have a, a very high respect for because of mm-hmm. just the the massive amount of stuff going on yeah um yeah. and uh what he's able to like accomplish and capture um but like you know i've seen all every west movie m- more than once except for asteroid city now and yeah. i don't have any of them rated lower than a four so even though like yeah. i would say this is like one of my least favorite west movies that's it's not to good. say I, yeah, I still like absolutely love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would have it like down sort of um, in a tier. I'm trying to think. Um, I need to pull up my list. Um, I would have it down in the the kind of bottom tier with um, kind of like Darjeeling, Moonrise, French Dispatch, Bottle Rocket, or kind of like down there in a in a little tier um, yeah. at the bottom. But they're all they're all like eight out of or eight out of 10 or four out of five for me. So, um, I still love them, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it for, um, for the French dispatch. We're going to be covering asteroid city next week. So that'll be exciting. It'll be the first like kind of current movie, um, in this series that I'm covering. Um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that conversation. But for now, we are going to take a quick break before we come back with some movie news and our movie draft segment. So uh, stick with us and we'll see you in a second. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us on The Establishing Shot today. We hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And we hope you'll stick around for the segments we have coming up after this quick break. But uh, during this break, I wanted to tell you how you can get more involved with the Establishing Shot podcast. There are several ways you can do this. The main way you can do it is by going to establishingshotpod.com, our website where you can find all sorts of information like uh, episodes with the show notes on there, uh, information about our guests for each episode. You can find uh, reviews there 
Uh, and uh, there's a page where you can actually leave a review on the website if you want to. You can see all the platforms where the podcast is available, like Apple, Spotify, all the major podcast platforms, and even uh, a link to our YouTube page where you can see a video version of the podcast. So uh, please go to the website. And uh, the place I want to highlight there is our donate page, uh, which has information about our Establishing Shot family. This is a way that you can subscribe to the podcast to support all the efforts and uh, the just the stuff that goes into making this podcast good and making it better than it even is now. We have different tiers that you can subscribe to uh, starting at $5. And what this will do is you'll be able to support the podcast, help me make it better. And also at the same time, you'll get early and ad-free episodes. You'll get access to our Discord server where you can join in and just kind of talking about movies with a community that loves uh, film. And so we, we would love to have you in there. Uh, and then the higher up in the tiers you go, the more you get uh, even things like uh, chats and video chats that we'll do uh, every once in a while where we get to talk about uh, in more detail stuff that we're talking about on the podcast. So I hope you'll subscribe to that. Uh, choose a tier that fits uh, your budget. And uh, I would love for you to support the podcast in that way. And uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, is where you can find us on social media. Uh, you can find me personally on Twitter at the Eli Price. And you can also follow me on Letterboxd. Letterboxd is kind of like a social media for movie reviews. So you can read my reviews there and you can find me there at just Eli Price, you know, no, no spaces or anything. Uh, so I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can find the podcast on all the uh, social platforms as well, such as Twitter at eShotPod and then on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok at EstablishingShotPod. So make sure to follow us so you don't miss anything. If you have uh, any questions or comments about the episode or about the podcast, you can always email us at establishingshotpod at gmail.com. And the very last thing I want to do before you get back into the episode today is just ask you to please go to Spotify and Apple and leave some ratings and reviews that really helps the visibility of the podcast and gets it in more people's podcast feeds. And so we hope you will do that for us and we would greatly appreciate it. So I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode and I will see you next time on the Establishing Shot podcast. Hey everyone, we are back uh, from the break. And uh, yeah, we're going to jump into some movie news. Um, I hope you enjoyed the the discussion on the French Dispatch because I definitely did. Um, but yeah, movie news this this week. Uh, uh, when this podcast is coming out is the mega weekend that everyone's been waiting for where both uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer and Greta Gerwig's Barbie are releasing on the same day. Um, Exciting stuff. Yeah. Are you planning on seeing both of these on the same day, Kara? I don't know about the same day. <laughs> um, and if I had to choose one, I'm going to be a Barbie girl. So I, if I see one opening weekend and have to like push one back to later that week, um, I'm definitely going Barbie, but 
Yeah. I don't know that I can do basically five hours at a theater in one day. That's a, that's a commitment of my day. I'd have to like run around outside in between movies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. My, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be really close to my, it's, well, it's on like my birthday weekend. And so like, yeah. I've been telling my wife, like, I want to go see, you know, Oppenheimer and IMAX. Um, uh -huh. And so like, but man, I would be really asking a lot from her to, <laughs> for her to let me see both in one day. And I think she wants yeah. to see Barbie with me. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that I'll be able to watch them both in, in one day, but it would be, it would be fun to be able to do that. Um, yeah. but yeah, not, not happening in my current station of life. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so for the movie news segment, we're not so much going to talk about um, those movies, because for one thing, like we would just be speculating um, on something that we haven't seen because it hasn't come out yet. Um, but also, um, I thought it would be interesting to to think about, like I was thinking about Greta Gerwig and, mm -hmm. you know, this is her um, her third, like, uh, you know, really major movie. She's she's made mm -hmm. uh, she made later Lady Bird and uh, Little Women. Uh, and both were like pretty big hits, um, yeah. you know, culturally, at least I, I don't, I don't know about box office numbers, but, um, you know, a lot of people love those movies. Um, and this is yeah. her, her third movie. Everyone's excited about it. Um, and it just got me thinking about like the women directors that are, um, that are, you know, currently working, um, you know, it's something that for a long time in cinema, um, you know, women directors were kind of like on the back burner. Um, yeah. It was very largely like a white male endeavor for a long time, which is yeah. funny because if you really look, look into film history, um, I'm, you know, it's actually like a woman that was um, the one that had like, Hey, instead of just like filming things that are actually like real and happening, we could probably like put some narrative to this and create a story with it. Um, like, I think one of the first like narrative film stories was, um, kind of like written, directed by a woman. Um, mm -hmm. and it was like this, uh, family that, um, I can't remember the name of it, but, um, it's like really early 1900s, um, or late 1800s. I can't remember, but, uh, it's like some people that want a baby, but they can't have a baby. And so, um, there's this like fairy in this cabbage garden that's like pulling babies out of uh, the cabbages, oh. <laughs> which I was all, it's like, I wonder if that's where like cabbage patch kids oh, came from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I watched like a, a short clip of it. Um, we actually, I think we don't actually have like the full um, film of it anymore. The whole, a lot of it was lost, but there are like pieces of it mm -hmm. that you can watch. Like you can just watch it on YouTube. Um, yeah. I wish I could remember the name of it so that I could tell you, um, uh, maybe I can pull it up right here as I talk. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of thinking about, you know, women directors and, um, yeah, you know, who is, what women directors are working today that are really like, um, making things happen and, uh, and, yeah. you know, what are they bringing to the table? Um, and, you know, I was, I wasn't really like planning on it just kind of this happenstance that you 
you are a woman and happen to be <laughs> on this episode with me. Um, but it was a happy happenstance for sure. Yes. <laughs> um, a happy coincidence. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I wrote, uh, you know, you have the outline that I sent you. I wrote down yeah. a ton of names that we're not going to talk about all of these names, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, what, were there any that stood out to you um, of movies you've seen recently? Um, and like, just, yeah, I guess I'll ask that first. Were there any that stood out to you in, in these names? Obviously um, Greta Gerwig, but yes. who else? Obviously Greta, including the fact that um, I saw, I believe it was announced that she's going to be tied to Narnia um, movies in the future, Yeah, which is very interesting. I saw a lot of feedback on that, especially from women being like the the dialogue we might get from this and the kind of like powerful looks at um the sisters and being women in this like world mm. and and all of that that will come in the you know the conversations on childhood and all of that um that perspective is very common in all of Greta's work thus far and I'm sure it'll be even like further heightened um in Narnia because of the nature of those those stories but um another one that I saw on the list who is newer um, is Emerald Fennel, who is like, you know, mm -hmm. a great actress in her own right. Um, I've seen her in a lot of things, um, whether that be The Crown or, um, oh, I can't think of what that show is. Oh, Call the Midwife. Um, she's great in that too. But I did love A Promising Young Woman. I thought that was such a great movie. Um, yeah. Really, you know, impactful and just interesting. And it felt kind of it had a, such a tone and a mood about it that was striking. And I think, you know, truly came from Emerald and her viewpoint and um, the way she viewed this story that, you know, of course a male director might not have been able to latch on to that, to even like the written work in the same way. So I think that um, she is a very interesting director and creator and performer in her own right that I'm sure will will continue to do work. I know that she's got another movie coming out soon-ish, um, Saltburn. I, I feel like I've yeah. seen a little preview, but I'm not, um, you know, I don't remember when that's coming out or how soon that is. But I think that those two were the ones that stood out for me as far as like, oh, yeah, I've noticed them and I've noticed specifically their viewpoint in a movie, not just the fact that mm -hmm. like, oh, they are a female director, but you can tell it was a woman who directed this movie specifically, you know? Yeah. And that's something, um, so I haven't seen promising young woman. It's, it's one mm -hmm. that I had on my watch list from, uh, I think that was, that came out two years ago. Yeah. It seems like, like um, and, uh, it's one that was like, it's probably still at the top of my watch list towards the mm -hmm. top from, from that movie year that I just haven't gotten around to, but I do know, um, I do know like that it, it kind of speaks to um, it from the sense that I get is it, it does have like a voice toward like um, sexual harassment or like, Oh yeah, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you know, even I don't, I don't know if it goes to like uh, to rape or not because I haven't seen it and yeah. I don't, I don't remember what the talk around it was, but, um, yeah. but yeah, it, which to me is really important to, cause for a long time you have male perspectives writing mm -hmm. movies of females that have, that are experiencing these things, but you don't really get 
the the full extent of like that emotion and that like what's going on for that person when yeah. you I have mean, someone that can't that hasn't experienced that writing mm-hmm. it you know and even for that and not, for this not, movie in particular um it's also a matter of the main character being the best friend of the person who was um raped and so like you just get also some female dynamics and like women relationships that Mm -hmm. obviously male directors and writers and stuff, they might be able to put that down on paper, but won't understand the full extent of it and understand the full emotional weight that women carry for one another. Um, Obviously, unless they are a woman and have been there or at least at the very least been very present in witnessing that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and, um, I think, um, you know, you know, it's not that it's been done. It hasn't been done well until it was a woman yeah. doing it. Um, because obviously like you have women actors and you have women like, you know, giving input. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, even if it's a male that writes it like mediocrely of how it should come across, yeah. like the woman playing it can still add to that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that is something like, um, I, along those themes, there's also like in a di- totally different genre, um, which is more like a, like horror thriller revenge mm-hmm. kind of, uh, story, which I haven't seen this either. Um, but it's called the Nightingale, um, by Jennifer Kent, who is another like kind of up and coming woman director, uh-huh. um, totally different genre, um, yeah. sort of, um, but that same sort of perspective of a woman that's experienced that sort of trauma and like, how do I portray this as a woman um, in this different genre? Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that's something that like I appreciate. And, and, you know, I was talking about last week on the episode where I was showing my, my favorite movies of the year so far, there's um, the, the move, it's a French movie, um, uh, Saint-Omer, by Alice Diop. Um, that is, um, it's like a, it's a bit of a courtroom jo- uh, drama and you have a woman that's been accused of, um, killing her 15 month old. Um, and so like, just like me as, you know, I kind of mentioned it last week, but just me as a male, like, not only can I like, not only have I not experienced like what she went through um, Mm -hmm. as a woman and a mother, but like, I literally can't experience that. And so like, like we were talking about earlier, like this is a, a medium for me to try to like understand and grow empathy for, for that. And so like, that's something that I really like look for. Like it's a reason that I want to watch more women directors. I want to watch more international movies you know by people of different countries because i want to experience i want to like experience a perspective that's different um yeah but yeah and even like i don't want to make it sound like oh it has to you know doesn't all have to be about like rape and sexual harassment Um, yeah (laughs) like i mean thinking about like um you know ladybird is a great movie like there's nothing like uh, deeply depressing about that. But like, even like from a woman's perspective, like how did two girls like 
how do their how does their friendship work and um yeah you know that's the joy in that is another like it doesn't have to be like oh i have to experience like this yeah you know depressing <laughs> thing that women yeah but yeah uh so that was like some of the the ones i labeled as like veterans like yeah. women who've been in the game for a while uh and then like i put current powerhouses as a as a category you have greta gerwig obviously um kelly Riker is one that i've uh, seen a few of hers and um i just think i really love everything that i've seen by her um uh, meek's cut off is one that's great it's a kind of a woman's perspective on a western which is oh, unique. yeah for sure um uh first cow came out a couple years ago that i loved that um she had showing up that came out this year um hasn't got like a ton of buzz but was really really good um michelle williams started that one as like a a artist in this kind of art community in portland okay. um uh Chloe Zhao, of course, who um, yeah. who got her Marvel turn with the Eternals yeah. that didn't get good reception, but to me was interesting. Um, yeah, but um, but yeah, she she did uh, a movie called The Rider mm -hmm. uh, several years ago that I haven't seen that I really want to. Um, and then um, uh, Ava DuVernay, of course, yes, uh, yeah, Celine Sciamma, who who like put out one of my favorite movies of last year and Padit Mama, um, uh, a really sweet, like, I want to say it's like less than 80 minute movie. Oh, wow. Um, that's, um, it's, it's French, French language. She's a French language. She's a French director. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, she, um, it's like, uh, I don't want to spend too much time, but she, it's basically like a little girl, who's um her mom has just lost her who's her grandma yeah okay. and there's this like weird kind of like fantasy thing that happens where she goes in the woods and meets her mom as a kid Aww. and uh interacts with her mom at like the same age That's cool. um and it's yeah it's a really emotionally it was very emotionally impactful for me um but but she'd probably be more known for portrait of a lady on fire that oh, came out yes of course a few years ago yeah. Yeah. But then, yeah, a lot of up and comers. You mentioned uh, Emerald Finner and I said Jennifer Kent, uh, Charlotte Wells, um, uh, who came uh, out with uh, um, After Sun, yes. which was my favorite movie of last year, was it was her first movie. I loved that movie. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Um, she's she's starting to. Yeah. Yeah, she's breaking in. I I really enjoyed her movie from last year too. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of great ones, and then you have others that I didn't really know how to categorize them because they've they've put out movies for a while, mm -hmm. but also like aren't like necessarily like they're not like that old. They're not like veterans. Yeah. Like, Sophia Coppola isn't really that old, even though she's been making movies for a while, for a while yeah. now. And I wouldn't even say she's a current powerhouse because she, you don't hear much buzz about her movies no, necessarily. But she's there. But, she's um, been, you know, kind of yeah. slightly ever present. <laughs> I guess, I guess maybe she's just a young veteran. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of women directors that are really like doing a lot of great work now, mm -hmm. right now. Um, and, you know, if you're listening and <laughs> a lot of these directors are like, I, you know, I haven't seen any movies by then. Like, go, go seek them out. Yeah. Like, 
you know, it's, you know, I would encourage, I, I would encourage everyone to make sure to, in your movie watching experience, don't only watch movies that like are made by people like you. Yeah, like, for sure. Watch movies made by people that are different than you that are giving a unique perspective mm -hmm. um, because that's part of what movies are all about is gaining new and different perspectives, I think. Yeah. So, and as always support from, you know, the big ones to the small ones, because, you know, going to see Barbie and that becoming successful means that Greta Gerwig as a female director will get even more acclaim and whatnot. And that'll help women behind her. We get, you know, able to get budgets, able to get into the door. And then of course, going and seeking them out on streaming services and platforms, like, you know, it always, from the small projects to the big projects, supporting like mm. just different creators. Like you said, anyone who's different or marginalized in any way, like supporting those creators on small scale and big scale are always beneficial in the long run. Even if it's just your one little stream on, you know, Netflix or Hulu or something like that'll help or buying that one ticket at the theater. Um, it always, it always keeps us moving forward. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, totally a hundred percent agree. Um, you know, and even like the, you know, thinking of Greta Gerwig, the inspiration for this talk, you know, she's, um, she kind of was getting backlash because she was saying like, well, I just want to make big studio blockbusters now. Yeah. And, uh, but that's what she's dreamed of doing. Yeah. And it, it like, when you get into those spaces, like you gain a, a certain degree of power. Absolutely. Um, you know, and what that allows you to do is make way for, for others yeah. that are like you that maybe won't have to work as hard as you did to make it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's important. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's go ahead and jump into our movie draft section. Um, so yeah, kind of along with the, the French dispatch theme, um, we're going to be drafting uh, movies about writers in film. And so, uh, you know, if this is your first uh, time tuning in, um, basically the movie draft is just we take turns choosing from the pool of whatever genre or, um, you know, whatever you want to call it um, that I've come up with for this week. So, um, you know, we're going to be taking turns. Kara will take the first pick and we're kind of, we'll accumulate our own um, team of movies from that uh, theme. And so, uh, and then, yeah, we'll put it out there and see who people think have the best list. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, I don't want to just, you know, I don't think Wes would want to just <laughs> limit it to writers of like, books or magazines like so let's expand it i said be creative with how you think of writers whether it's music or um however you want to apply it let's let's be creative um and uh yeah so that's what we're going to do we're going to draft writers in film um movies with about writers yeah and so yeah let, let's let's just jump right in um Kara, uh, you're a first time guest, so you get the first pick. Um, so where are you going with the very first pick okay. of the writers in film draft? Yes. So though I am, I am going to be taking a liberal stance on the term writer later 
for my first pick, I'm going for a straight up writer. Um, and I am choosing The Help, which is a wonderful okay. classic movie, um, amazing acting, and about a woman who wants to show the world the perspectives of the women who help in her town and who work for, you know, families like hers. And it shows her a little her writing process. It shows her trying to get the book made. It shows the book coming to fruition and you know, supporting these people, changing their lives. And so a true writer, a wonderful movie, um, and a great one to go back and watch if you haven't watched it in a while. I hadn't seen it in so long. And I saw it the other day because it just happened to, you know, pop up as like a suggestion. And I was like, this is such mm. a good movie. So funny, so sweet, so heartbreaking. It's all of the things. Yeah, yeah. It is a really good movie. Um, I, I enjoy that one. The And it does have like, you know, it is there. It has some very funny moments and also yeah. like some very like emotionally affecting moments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, and I don't even know. I don't, I don't think I had it on my list, but I don't know why it, it feels like it should have come up um, when I was looking. But um, but yeah, <laughs> not on my list, uh, unfortunately, because it should have been. Um, OK, so. I was hoping that I would be able to get this. Um, and it's one that I mentioned just a minute ago. And it's one that like from the moment, like I saw it in theaters, like I absolutely loved. Um, and that's Greta Gerwig's little woman. Um, <laughs> I, I love, um, I love her. I like the old one too. Um, yeah. you know, not the older, older ones. Cause there are several adaptations, but, um, the one from uh the nineties, I okay. believe. Yeah. Um uh it's got um one owner writer in yes, it. Yes, and yes. yeah, um that one's that one's good too, but this one I love. Yeah. Um she adds I love she uh, added so much to this to this telling of this little woman's story. Yeah, and the way she structured it was great. Mm -hmm. Um and Sorcerer Ronan is just like just so perfect um in yes. that role um and so yeah that's that's my first pick probably not where you thought i would go but i knew that i needed to snag it early and it's one that i really really do love so yeah i definitely yeah, where are you gonna go next i thought i would be able to grab that at some point because i thought <laughs> you would start off with something else or you know i don't know what you would start with but i was thinking like oh maybe me with little women but i should have known that with greta gerwig it'd be on the top of the top of the brain. Um, I'm going with a different take on writer. Um, this movie is based off of writing of two characters, writing to one another all throughout the film. You get to the end without the knowledge, without one character having the knowledge that the other was the writer all along. It's how they meet. It's how they fall in love. I am stealing. You've got mail. Hmm. And technically, she is a writer. Yeah, she, she does becomes have a, a book at the book end. Writer. Yes, she does. Yep. Um, yeah. And just like, you know, Little Women, it had previous iterations with like Shop Around the Corner from back in the day. And again, they mm -hmm. were letter writers. Which is great. Yeah. So they wrote letters. These guys write emails, but it's all the same. And some of the writing in it is so, you know, nice and poetic. And it's just such a good movie. Also, I thought, yeah. based off of the people we have in common, 
I feel as though that's going to help me get some votes in the long run. <laughs> uh, if your family's yeah, voting, yeah. that might help me out a lot because <laughs> I know we all love that movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I love You've Got Mail too. It, it's one of my favorite rom coms. I, I would say. Um, yeah. Just like thinking about that genre. Um, also directed by a woman, yeah, I, Nora Ephron. There you go. There you go. Um, at, what, who is the help directed by? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know that it's directed yeah. by the woman. By a woman, I think. I mean, it's written by a woman, I believe. Um, yeah. Tate Taylor's the director. Okay. Well, <laughs> two out of the three so far yeah. directed by women. So they were little did we know we were going to be on theme there too. Um, but probably won't stay on theme as far as that goes. Um, yeah, I have a really long list here, um, which I'm realizing is kind of working against me because yeah. it's so hard to choose uh, <laughs> what to pick next. Um, but I think I'm going to go with, oh, it's so hard. Um, I think I'm going to go with um, another movie that I think is really, really good. Um, uh, it's one that's like a 10 out of 10 for me about one of my favorite directors. And it is a little bit, um, it's not, this character is not a writer in the sense you would normally think, but he keeps a journal and that okay. um, serves as like a narrative, um, like a narration structure through the movie. And that's a uh, taxi driver. Uh, um, all right. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, and it really is like that. That's the, the, his journal entries are kind of the fr yeah. framing device for the movie. Um, and uh, so in that sense, he is, a writer and it it's plays an important role in how the movie plays out and really like not just what not and not even I guess so much in what happens in the movie but the giving you his perspective mm -hmm. um and uh and he does it his writing actually is like not bad from that from what it, for what it is yeah. too uh, I would say um and so I, um, that's just one that I, I think is like just a, a masterpiece or close to it for a movie. So that's, that's where I'm going with my second pick. Okay. Where are you going next? My third pick, um, it's going to be a very classic movie, a big kind of jumping off point for several actors. I kind of put it on there with like Dazed and Confused as like, there's so many people in there once you go back and watch it. But um, yeah. it is following a young, fresh writer as he writes for Rolling Stones. So I'm going with Almost Famous. Mm. <laughs> Very good pick. Yeah, I finally picked up on where you were going yeah. there towards the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really fun movie. Yeah, um, and so many people like for sure. Jimmy Fallon, Kate Hudson, Zoe Deschanel, all these people as just babies, really. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of where I want to go next. Yeah. So like, I have picks that like, I feel like are more like crowd pleasing picks that might do, do me better for the poll. Uh -huh. But I also have uh, that have picks that like, probably less people have seen, but that I really like. Mm -hmm. And so that's the 
that's the dilemma i'm in um and so like do i want to please the crowd and win the poll or do i want to be true to yourself these movies yeah be true to myself but also put these movies out there so maybe someone might watch one um so if i'm gonna do that i guess i'll start with one that is more accessible um meaning that uh you know probably pretty much anyone could watch it and enjoy it um without having to think too hard and that is um a really sweet uh little as not a little but a sweet movie called sing street <laughs> it's about um have you seen it yeah i have That's great. Yeah. So it's written by John Carney, who um, is probably more fam- famous for the movie Once. Yes. Seen that um, as well. That has, uh, yeah, that has Glenn Hansard and uh, Marketa Irgalova, mm-hmm. um, who, um, uh, oh man, the I'm trying to think of their, they came out together as like a kind of music duo, and I'm blanking on the name of their group. But, um, but anyway, Sing Street is like um, this boy in Dublin yeah. growing up. And uh, he has a he has a band, and so like the writing por- portion is they write music. True, and um, it's like these very like eighties like pop rock songs that him and his friends are writing, um, and uh, he like falls in love with a girl that was old that's like older. He's kind of like maybe like preteen to like maybe thirteen or fourteen, yeah. and you know she's kind of like feels like more like seventeen. Yeah. Um, years old and so like he's trying to like impress this girl and it I don't know I just love it the songs are fun um the like he's very sweet as a character uh-huh. um yeah it just makes me smile um it's a it's a really good movie yeah um, I had to watch it it was Irish so, so. <laughs> yeah there you go um yeah you liked it too yeah I did like it I think it's cute and it's yeah. just yeah it's very 80s it's very irish it's funny yeah and it's just one it's one of those movies that um i just like smiled through the whole thing which is kind of rare and so like i just love it so i hope me mentioning that will make some people watch sing street (laughs) i thought it was good yeah all right Where's your, what's your uh, fourth pick going to be? Okay. So since you changed it up and went lesser known, mine is not lesser known, I would say, but I am going to throw it old and classic movie. This was one of the movies that was referenced in Gilmore Girls and was one. I think I originally saw it because I rented it from Blockbusters back in the day, but I Mm -hmm. love it. Um, Starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. I'm going with His Girl Friday, which is a classic movie about two um, writers for a paper and falling in love and bickering and falling out and back in love through their process of being in the newsroom together and getting the story and writing and just it's such a bouncy old classic movie I love it mm-hmm. yeah I haven't seen that one but I but I would love to see it yeah, that um, one is it's definitely one that's been on my radar yeah that's a great one and just like a common reference you know Um, When there are two Mm -hmm. characters in any movie or TV show or book where they like bounce off each other, have a love hate relationship. It's the his girl Friday kind of, you know, vibe. And you definitely, you get understand why that's the reference when you watch it. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Okay. Yeah. So I'm gonna go. It's my fourth pick now. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go with um. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I think I know where I'm gonna go with this one. I'm gonna go with adaptation. Um, okay. Adaptation is uh, it's starring um. You know, uh, uh, Nick Cage famously in his dual role as twin brothers. Um, it's directed by Spike Jones, um, but uh, but really like famously written by Charlie Kaufman, who's who's kind of um, uh, more people probably are familiar with being John Malkovich, which mm-hmm. was written by Kaufman, directed by Spike Jones. But um, this one is actually like more. Um, it has Meryl Streep um, in it, and um, Charlie Kaufman as a writer, he's it's really interesting as a writer to begin with. Um, but uh, this is this movie is basically like the character is named Charlie Kaufman, mm-hmm. um, Nick Cage's character, um, who's the main character. And so Charlie Kaufman loved this book written by uh, Su- Susan Orlean called like the Orchid something. I can't even remember what it's called. Um the orchid thief about flowers and it's it's he wanted to adapt it it's not a it's not a work of fiction Mm -hmm. um it's a work of nonfiction. but he wanted to adapt it into a movie but he couldn't figure out how to adapt it into a movie and so he just like wrote himself into it and it's about the the writing endeavor of trying to adapt something that's not adaptable and just like uh, I would, this to me is Nick Cage's best performance, um, as this kind of these dual character, these twin brothers. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Mer- Meryl Street probably plays the author of the book he's trying to adapt. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a really wild, anything by Charlie Kaufman is really wild and out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think most people could watch this and, and appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I, I love it. It's a great movie. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm going with my first pick adaptation. Okay. Um, I am going to go with one that uh, film bros would uh, hate me for, but it was the very first thing that I thought of when I thought of writing. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Letters to Juliet which is a classic 2010 uh, rom-com starring Amanda Seyfried and Vanessa Redgrave. Um, And again, we've got letter writing, which counts, um, including the women who are the secretaries of Juliet who respond to all of the brokenhearted. Um, And then Amanda Seyfried ends up becoming a writer at the newspaper that she was just previously fact checker after this story and this journey she takes with this grandmother and grandson. So, I mean, it's cheesy and adorable and just an Italian summer dream. You got to love it. Great. I haven't seen it. Ah, uh, come so on. So I can't, I can't film bro <laughs> and like critique you for it because I haven't seen it. So there you go. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, great pick, bad pick. I don't know. <laughs> The, the people, the, the people, people decide. I think the people will side with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, um, there's uh, the, my next pick is probably going to be another one that 
not many people have seen, okay. but it's by a director that I really love, um, uh, Jim Jarmish. Um, this is pro I guess this would probably be one of his more popular movies. Um, the other one being uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, that stars um, uh, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston mm -hmm. as vampires. Um, but this movie that I'm picking is uh, Patterson. Um, it stars uh, Adam Driver as the titular character Patterson and uh, living in the town of Patterson, New Jersey. Okay. Um, and he is this uh, bus driver um, that is an aspiring poet. And um, okay. And so, like, on his best route, um, whenever he's making stops, yeah. he um, pulls out his notebook and is writing poetry. And you kind of get some, like, annotated, um, you know, words across the screen, like, of him writing mm -hmm. his and, like, kind of dictating his poetry uh, narrative st narration style, I guess. Um, and it's it's funny because, like, he's he lives this mundane life. He has um, he has a wife that. um they have a little bit of a rocky relationship um, mm -hmm. and uh, it it's very, yeah, he's a bus driver. It's a very mundane life yeah. he lives. It's very like um, structured his, his life. You kind of see through the movie um, his, the structure of his life. And um, yeah, it's, but what's, what's really interesting is like he's writing this poetry that is actually like, really beautiful um like you're hearing it and you're like man this is actually like really beautiful poetry and really like poignant um but it you get the feeling that no one will ever know yeah um because how can this guy who's a bus driver in patterson new jersey get his work yeah. out there um and so it's kind of you know and then at on top of that a lot of create you know people that are creatives in that way, like you always feel like your work isn't that great. Yeah. Um, you're never satisfied. And so like he, he, you know, his wife kind of pushes him to keep writing and, um, but yeah, it's a really good movie. Um, it just kind of like, I guess about that, that I, um, that endeavor of like keeping on doing like what you are actually like, you know, gifted to do. Yeah. And I think on top of that, like Patterson, New Jersey is like the home of actually like a, a decent amount of famous, like artists oh, and poets. Okay. Yeah. And so like, he has that like weighing over him of like, I'll never be this. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good movie and Adam driver is in it. So that's kind of like my pool of like, if you haven't seen it, Adam driver's in yeah. it. Um, <laughs> is, he's the main I character. Mean, so good. go yeah. see it. Yeah, it it really is. I I loved it. Um, I I think it's my favorite Jim Jarmusch mo movie, and I've seen a decent amount of his. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Patterson. Okay, your this is your sixth pick. Yes, my sixth okay. pick. I am going with um a very emotional, very beautiful story, kind of about the like writing what writing can do and how it can free you and how it can lead to kind of, I don't know, the betterment of yourself and understanding yourself. I'm going to go with freedom writers, the okay. seven Hillary Swank classic, but really, you know, definitely the first time I saw it, I feel like I didn't even see the full movie the first time. I think it was just on TV, but obviously just having these like kids who are just really in kind of 
the worst situation growing up in kind of a hopeless like no i'm just going to be you know on on the streets like my family i'm going to end up in a horrible situation but then giving them the encouragement to do something for themselves and giving them these journals and and you know leading them to write like having those outlets and like we were talking earlier about like the oppression of of where you stand but then giving someone an outlet to create and to work process through that even if you know they don't become a famous artist the you know the idea of hoping for the future because you have an outlet to process your situation is you know it's beautiful yeah yeah uh, I actually haven't seen Freedom Riders, but it's one of those movies that like you hear about and you feel like you've seen it. Yeah. Because you feel inspired, you feel inspired just hearing about like the premise or the yeah. like story behind it um, that inspired it. And so, yeah, de- it's definitely one of those like just inspiring movies that like, man, I haven't seen that, but I'm 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 inspired just about he- by hearing about that story. You yeah, know? <laughs> I feel like that's probably a movie that inspired. Uh... <laughs> a lot of people to become teachers or, and, or if you're, are a teacher, they, you know, tell you to go watch that and, you know, do good and and be good for the world. (laughs) For sure. Um, okay. I have several, I always have several that I want to do, but only like two picks left. So I think what I'm going to do is, Man, it's so hard. I'm going to have to definitely give some honorable mentions. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I have a really long list. Um, but I'm going to go with... Oh, geez. I'm trying to see... I'm trying to look at how many films I have that are, like, actually writing and how many, like, I'm stretching. Yeah. But really, I'm not <laughs> stretching... Taxi Driver was maybe the biggest stretch. The other ones are like largely about riding. Um, so I feel like I can stretch a little bit. But man, uh, so I'm going to go with a very recent movie uh, that came out last year um, that was really, really good. Um, I'm going to go with Tar. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. starring Clay, Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. She's, um, she's a composer, uh, writing, um, uh, well, she's a composer and largely, um, a, uh, a conductor. Yeah. So, um, I would say it's, you know, it's a bit of a stretch because largely what she does is, is conduct. Nice. Um, but there's a sense in which she is like, taking a piece mm-hmm. of music and like writing the way it sounds by the way she conducts. Yeah. So it's a bit of a stretch, but I think she also does compose stuff. Technically <laughs> um, that character has yeah. composed her own stuff in the past too. So I guess maybe it's not that much of a stretch, Yeah. but, um, but yeah, it's, I think uh, obviously like Kate Blanchett is just a powerhouse yeah. of an actress and um, everything she does is, is fantastic. Um, and, uh, but this role is just like, felt like it was like made for her. It was just like, she was incredible in it. Um, and it really is about, there's a degree to which it's about the, 
just the systems around like that world of creating mm -hmm. um and you know in this sense like writing or conducting and like the the power structures in place in those worlds too and how like as you gain power what do you do with it um uh so as a especially like as a creative that has yeah. so much influence um on the culture and so yeah it very um very very good movie and um yeah that's where i'm gonna go with all right so is this my last, last one bit. all right um i am just you know i'm sure that other people will be able to tell based off my list that i i do watch a lot of popular movies and i do watch a lot of rom-coms and i'm just gonna stay true to that Great. because i do think it'll get me the popular vote i don't know what your voting uh demographic looks like but <laughs> I don't either. I think for the masses, um, <laughs> I I might win just off of popularity or like name recognition. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm gonna stick to true to me. So I'm going another rom com, 2003. Something's gotta give, starring um, Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson and Keanu Reeves and Francis McDormand's in there. So you're pulling it back with hey. a Wes Anderson like tried and true. And it was also directed by a woman, Nancy Myers. So, you know, we're just really there tying it all together. But she, you know, have you seen something kind of give? I haven't, but okay. I would like to. Yeah, this one is um, a famous, you know, you know rom-com Nancy Myers movie. Um, Diane Keaton plays a playwright who, throughout the process of um, meeting Jack Nicholson and, you know, dealing with a lot of things, whether that's her daughter or these other men in her life, she is a playwright. And she also in the movie writes a play with some of the scenes that you have mm. witnessed as well. Um, and that, you know, becomes, you know, funny, very entertaining for, for the crowd and uh, really hurtful to Jack Nicholson, but you know, of course the rom-com. So yeah. it's, it bounces back and forth. It's a good one. It's a classic yeah. one, you know, so that's my, going to be my last pick. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't go wrong with Jack Nicholson. No. Um, but yeah, I, you know, he's one of those guys that like, you think about like, there, there's, um, there's not many people that probably couldn't work in a Wes Anderson movie, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, man, would Jack Nicholson work in a Wes Anderson movie? I don't know. Maybe not. He might be um, a little too much. Like, I don't know. The energy yeah. might not be quite right. Right. Um, yeah, it's very interesting to think about. I think I saw, saw someone asking on Twitter recently, like, what actor would not work in a Wes Anderson movie? Yeah. Um, but I, I did not think about, um, I didn't think about him. But yeah, Jack Nicholson, I don't know if he would work. I don't know. But uh, he's not he's not acting right now, so we, we'll, never, we'll, never know. we'll never know. Um, all right, my last pick. I have some other ones that I would really love to get on get on this list, um, but since we're since we seem to be circling back around and staying yeah. on theme with things we've been talking about, I'm gonna go with um, a documentary uh, okay. called uh, "I Am Not Your Negro." Um, okay. It's uh, it's about James Baldwin. Oh, um, all right. So uh, it's directed by Raoul Peck who is um, a Haitian filmmaker. He, he does um, a decent amount of documentary work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but this is, um, 
he's basically like working from um the some text of james baldwin's like unfinished work mm -hmm. um he james baldwin had a novel that he never finished uh before he died and um he uh yeah that so he's he's working off of that unfinished novel mm -hmm. um and um it's kind of like a reflection of what it is to be um uh, black in the, in america yeah um and so it's based on Baldwin's work. Um, it's, it's actually narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and then it has a lot of like, has a lot of like archive footage of, um, of just like, uh, of, of James Baldwin, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of interviews with him, but you know, obviously with, uh, big names like, uh, uh, King Jr. and Malcolm X yeah. and, um, Harry Belafonte. Um, there's some archive footage of him, Sidney Poitier, Ray Charles. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just this documentary and it's a very like, it's, um, it's not like a straightforward documentary. Like you would think of mm -hmm. it very much sticks to the, the kind of like poetic eloquence that Baldwin had. Yeah. Um, and so like, it's kind of like, a collage of these, you know, this for footage of these, um, black Americans that were influential. Um, and like when you put everything together, you really have a, a sense of just the, the, I don't know, the injustice of, of it all. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's one that I feel like just sticking on, it's very much about, a writer yeah. um, working off of uh, James Baldwin's work. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it circles back to the influence um, of the, the character that Jeffrey Wright played in the French dispatch um, and Roebuck Wright. And so, yeah, I, I feel like that's a good. Yeah. Um, you there. Coming full circle uh -huh. moment uh, with the final pick of the draft. Um, yeah. So that's, that's our, movie draft let's uh i'm gonna read back our pick okay um and uh yeah so kara ended up with the help you've got mail almost famous his girl friday letters to juliet freedom riders and something's gotta give mm -hmm. uh, i ended with little women taxi driver sing street adaptation patterson tar and i am not your negro and uh yeah it's these are some good lists yeah. we'll we'll put it out there and see um see what the people think um you definitely have some some crowd pleasers yeah um and then you know i i think i have some for the um the you know cinephile uh, yeah. if you want to say that for sure so uh, we'll just see we'll, who the we'll voters see. are <laughs> basically yeah yeah you know you know, we'll see if more people that you share it with vote for you um, and your popular picks. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I got Little Women. I know. I'm mad you stole Little Women. That for sure was going to be in there. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people know, t know and like Taxi Driver, too. Yeah, so. for sure. And Tar um, has had, like, obviously, it's very fresh on the brain, critically acclaimed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I I just felt like I wanted to get some movies out there that I wanted people to see with this one. I, I, get that. I was less worried about winning the poll. So well, hey, if you win, I want people to see all the movies win, that great. I just posted. 
They're all great. There's, yeah, there's some that I wanted to see that I haven't seen yet that maybe now I will. So (laughs) great. Um, Yeah, that's, that was our movie draft. Uh, Let's uh, wrap things up with some recommendations of the week. Um, Do you have, do you have something already prepared? Um, No, I kind of literally just forgot that that was. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I will share mine. And then uh, while I'm sharing, uh, you don't have to listen. You can just be thinking of what you're going to pick. Okay. Um, so this is like one of the rare occasions where I actually had something planned. Um, yeah. So my recommendation is to, uh, I guess the overarching recommendation is along. Uh, it's with the theme of writing and the French dispatch, obviously. Um, and that is to find some really good um, film critics to read. Um there are, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, but, um, you know, there's some really good stuff and very, like, to me, the best film critics don't just like write about what happened in the movie and Mm -hmm. then say if it's good or not. Um, but like actually try to reflect on the movie and, um, and like apply it to life. Um, and there's some really good ones out there. Um, obviously Roger Ebert, who, who has passed, now um but a lot of the movies you know pretty much any movie when while he was alive and before he you know passed you can look back and he has reviews on Mm -hmm. a ton of them and um he had a way of just like it there was a reason why he was so popular um but he just had a way of talking about movies that was very like poignant and very like um just insightful uh and meaningful Um, but yeah, I would recommend, yeah, looking back on, you know, guys like him that wrote, uh, film, uh, film criticism like Roger Ebert, but also like finding some people writing about stuff today. Uh, one that comes to mind, like, and this guy gets, I think he gets some flack because he's one of those guys that's really stingy with his ratings and, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I really respect, um, his writing and the way he thinks about movies. And he always seems to, in his reviews have at least one thing that I haven't heard anyone else Mm -hmm. like get out of a movie, which I really appreciate. And that's, um, David Ehrlich. Um, he, um, I follow on, follow him on letterbox. So whenever I, um, see a movie, um, I'll go on letterbox and he almost always has like a review on, on there and I'll go click and, um, read it or skim through it. And, um, he's one that I really, really, um, feel like is a great film critic writing today. Um, but yeah, there's, there's other, um, like, uh, uh, Michael Phillips and Keith Phipps or, or, uh, some guys they have that I, subscribe to their thing called the reveal. It's like a Substack writing where they mm-hmm. do some, um, uh, you know, just movie reviews and stuff like that. And they have some good stuff, but yeah, I would just recommend go, but you can look up those or just find someone that you like, but, um, it just, for me, it helps me reflect. It helps me find different perspectives on a movie. Um, and yeah, just on theme with writing, find a writer that's doing some good film criticism to kind of enhance your movie viewing experience. Uh, yeah. What, what do you have this week Um, for your recommendation? So mine is very random and just like a quick little thing, but, um, 
we're recording this on July 7th. Well, now it's July 8th officially, but um, July 7th. (laughs) And um, Taylor Swift just re-released her um, Speak Now album, which came out so many years ago now. And so when I was listening to it, it was just, I was flooded with memories of being so much younger and listening to that album in the back of like my parents' car on the Mm. way to like my brother's baseball tournament. So my recommendation is to go back and listen to or watch or read something that you were obsessed with when you were much younger and just have that flood of like nostalgia and memories and Mm. just happiness because it was so much fun to just feel, you know, like a kid again, um, listening to that album. So I think that that is a good, just like, just go find some joy listening or watching something that you were obsessed with when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. And a little, I don't, I don't even think you realize as you're saying it kind of is on theme because Wes is like longing for in the French dispatch, you know, kind of, uh, a way of, uh, kind of magazine press that kind of is yeah. lost today. Yeah. Um, kind of hearkening back to that and having nostalgia for reading those New Yorker articles when he was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So there you go. <laughs> we're both, uh, we're both staying on theme. Always. Sort of with <laughs> yeah. our recommendations. Little did we know. Well, I kind of knew, but little <laughs> did you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that's a great recommendation. Um, it doesn't have to be Taylor Swift speak now. No, it doesn't. But it can. It but can it can be. be. You never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and those are, um, if I'm not mistaken, she's re- re-releasing them with like extra stuff in the songs that were were like edited out by the producers and stuff well and then just adding Um, old tracks so for her as well she's going back and seeing the nostalgia of like looking at her own journals and reading her own Mm. old lyrics of songs that never came to be at the beginning but now are getting to be released into the world that are based off her personal experiences and you know catharsis and all of the things that we've been talking about that you know art can be so yeah yeah so i guess it's kind of like a similar endeavor for her that it was for you yeah there you like go. her going back and experiencing that too yeah that's really cool actually um yeah uh so i guess with that we'll, <laughs> we'll um we'll finish things out um i had mentioned kind of towards the beginning yes. that kara has uh an instagram where she puts her her uh uh, short movie reviews, which um, I always appreciate seeing. <laughs> so, if you want to plug that and um, and anything else you want to plug, um, where people can follow you, go ahead uh, yeah. and let us know where to do that. Yeah. So, um, my movie review account um, is called Kara Rates Things, and that's Kara K A R A. Um, so that I just post mainly, yeah, new releases, things that I'm seeing currently at the theater. Um, and again, I'm a generous reviewer and I see a lot of movies that, um, might be just popular, like crowd pleasers. So if you didn't like my list, then you might not like <laughs> the movies that I review. You might not find <laughs> anything in it. Or if you're a harsh critic, you might find mine, uh, too nice. But overall, if you seem to like the movies that I like, then you'll probably then just get a good basis of like, oh, okay. Kara said she liked it. I'll probably like it too. I'll go see it. Um, that's where I get most of my feedback is like, oh, okay, if you thought it was good, then I'll go see it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, and even if you are uh, too harsh of a critic, 
just go go follow Kara rates things on Instagram yes. and lighten up. Come <laughs> on, people, go. like lighten up a little bit. Yeah, like just have Kara's perspective more. Enjoy like, it. Like you know, not everything has to be terrible. Yeah, just enjoy something. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, that was my attempt at being curmudgeony, <laughs> but actually for a good cause. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, follow Kara Rates Things on Instagram and probably on threads now, since that's yeah. a thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll um, have to create a thread account for that too. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all we have for this week. I uh, hope you all enjoyed the discussion on the French Dispatch and the movie news. And I had a lot of fun with that. That yeah. was a fun movie draft. I didn't do any honorable mentions. Um, do we want to do a quick aside of honorable mentions? Did you have any honorable mentions um, before we before we log off? I feel like mine are. I, yeah, no, I mean, I'm good. I had more, I'll, but more. I'll say this. Yeah. I'll say this. One of them that I didn't draft that was really good is uh, Her with Joaquin Phoenix. He's oh. an obit he's actually an obituary writer. Oh, I didn't even that know movie. that. Um, I never saw yeah, that movie, like, but that's funny. Yeah. Um, so that would have been a fun, funny tie-in. Um, and it's a actually one. a really good movie. It's a really good movie, too. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, but the one that I was like looking at that I was like, this is the biggest stretch for the writing theme is the social network because ah. technically he writes the code <laughs> for Facebook. I would have allowed um, it, but that's because I'm a generous person. <laughs> exactly. But I, I was like, I'm not going to do that, but it would be fun to stretch yeah. the, the theme that yeah, far. I do like the creativity and um, thinking of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was our, that was our following my bunny trail ADD thought of we forgot to do honorable mentions. And now we will officially close things <laughs> off, but go follow Kara rates things. Yes, thank you. I want to make sure to emphasize that. So yes. and I'm thank not you ending for, with my bunny trail. Yes. And thank you for having <laughs> me on. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. And, uh, and I hope to have you back on in the future. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that's it for this week. We hope you have enjoyed the establishing shot and uh, I'll see you again next week while uh, we cover Asteroid City. Looking forward to that. So uh, that's all for now. See you again soon. I've been Eli Price for Kara Smith. This has been the establishing shot. Thank you so much for joining us on the establishing shot today. We hope you enjoyed the episode and got a lot out of it. Make sure before you go to like and subscribe uh, on all your podcast platforms and especially on Spotify and Apple. If you could leave a rating and review, that would greatly help the visibility of the podcast and I would greatly appreciate it. Again, if you go to establishingshotpod.com, you can find out all you need to know about the show, where to find us on the social media platforms, where to find us podcast wise, YouTube. Uh, and you can even leave a voicemail there on the website on the right side of your screen. So click that if you want to give a comment or ask a question about the show. Uh, just feel free to leave a voicemail. We'd be happy to feature that on the show. And also, if you just want to email rather than leave a voicemail, you can email us at establishingshotpod at gmail.com. 
and we would be happy to answer your question there or feature a question or comment on the show if it pertains to uh, the episodes. So please do that. And we would love for you to join the Establishing Shot family. You can, again, find where to do that on the donate page at establishingshotpod.com. We hope you have a great week and we look forward to seeing you again next time. We were happy here for a little while. But look, I think it was this way. Better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. (laughs) 